I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. (music) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to part four of the Clear Shakespeare Midsummer Night's Dream podcast. Quickly before we start, if you enjoy the Clear Shakespeare podcast, I hope you'll consider supporting it. Go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks to make it all possible. I'd also really appreciate it if you would follow this podcast on iTunes. And if you really like it, you can leave a good review. Thanks a lot. Okay, now grab your copy of A Midsummer Night's Dream and turn to Act 3, Scene 2. And this is the big boy. Almost every one of Shakespeare's plays has a scene like this one. It usually happens about halfway through the play, and it takes place just at the moment when all of the plot strands have finally come together. He's done all the setting up he can, and now it's time for people to get in the ring and wrestle. And that's what this scene does. All the separate strands of plot that had previously been off in their own world are now going to be fighting it out in the same place. So you have the mechanicals and the person of bottom tied up with Titania, the queen of the fairies, as revenge from her husband, Oberon. You also have Oberon and Puck messing around with these lovers, who all love the wrong people right now. And this is all taking place in the same spot in the woods. And when Oberon enters at the beginning of this scene, his first job is to sort of remind us where he's been. Remember that the last time we saw him, he had just put his spell on Titania and had just sent Puck to put the spell on the lovers. So his first line reminds us of that. He says, I wonder if Titania be awaked. Then, what it was that next came in her eye, which she must dote on in extremity. So just a quick brush up on the plot. Now we, of course, know something he doesn't know. Good old dramatic irony. We know that she is awake and we know what she saw. But the first thing we hear from him is that he needs to know that information. So he wonders if she's awake. Then, what it was that next came in her eye. No, gross, that's not what that means. It means next came into her sight. Remember those ideas of sight and eye are incredibly important in this play. And this thing is what she must dote on in extremity. Dote on means to obsessively fall in love with. And in extremity means severely, tremendously, to an extreme degree. And lucky for him, just when he's wondering all these important plot details, you have an exposition fairy coming in. It's Puck, and Oberon says, Here comes my messenger. How now, mad spirit? Remember how now is sort of the equivalent of what's up, what's going on? And he calls him mad spirit. Mad here, not quite like insane, but more like wild, excitable. And this is a really useful piece of direction for the person playing Puck. He's mad. And he asks him kind of a beautiful question. What night rule now about this haunted grove? I love that term, night rule. It's a very specific choice of language. Night rule is basically things that go on at night, and they're especially craziness or other things that couldn't happen during the day. So it's all the bizarre things that happen under the rule of nighttime. And he calls it a haunted grove, not just in the sense that there are spirits and fairies hanging around, but in the sense that there's a lot of people there. And Puck replies with this kind of incredible set piece. It's a long and very poetically dense and very funny monologue. People love to use this as an audition monologue, but it basically sums up what we just saw. And his first line is a standalone line. He says, my mistress with a monster is in love. And this is great news for Oberon. This is exactly what he wanted. I like how simple that statement is. What's going on? Well, Titania's in love with a monster, period. Notice the other thing he does in this first line, which is that he brings rhyme back into the play. Yes, love and grove used to rhyme back in the day. You can hear also that poetic density with mistress and monster. So he states that they maybe have a little celebration, and then he goes on to tell this story. He says, Near to her close and consecrated bower, while she was in her dull and sleeping hour, a crew of patches, rude mechanicals, that work for bread upon Athenian stalls were met together to rehearse a play intended for great Theseus' nuptial day. 
Okay, that's a long sentence, and it's full of adjectives, so you know the language is getting denser and denser. And the first two adjectives are a great piece of alliteration, close and consecrated. Close not as in our modern sense of close by, but as in private or secret, and consecrated. Consecrated means blessed or holy. In this case, it was probably blessed by the fairy's song. The fairy is very, very ineffectual song they used to protect her before she went to sleep. And the bower, again, is both that kind of flowery glade she was sleeping in, but it can also refer to a lady's bedroom. So near to her bower, while she was in her dull and sleeping hour, dull not as in stupid, but as in drowsy, it's sort of a synonym for sleeping, an hour not literally an hour, just meaning time, so she was in the middle of the time when she sleeps. So nearby her, a crew of patches. That's a wonderful sounding word, but not like elbow patches. It means clowns or rubes. There's something kind of lower class about this name. And then he describes them as rude mechanicals. And there's some sense in rude of like uncultivated or mean in our modern sense. But what it really means here is rough, lower class, uneducated. And then he calls them mechanicals. Not quite like auto mechanics, but not so far from that either. It just means people who work with their hands. And you'll often see this group referred to as the mechanicals, and it comes from this line here. Because it's a great description for them. You can't just describe them as the idiots. So this crew of mechanicals that work for bread upon Athenian stalls, they work for bread, in other words, for their pay to buy food, upon Athenian stalls. Stalls are like booths in the marketplace where they sell their stuff. That's why they're mechanicals. They make things with their hands and then they sell them. So they were met together to rehearse a play intended for great Theseus's nuptial day. Remember, his wedding day. Ooh, got it? Exposition. So that's the who. And then he gets more particular. He says, The shallowest thick skin of that barren sort, who Pyramus presented in their sport, forsook his scene and entered in a break. Here's another good adjective. The shallowest. In other words, the dumbest or the most naive. And then he calls him a thick skin. Great insult, right? You should call somebody that the next time you hate them. It literally means like a thick-headed person, a dummy. Sort of close to blockhead, I think. So the dumbest blockhead of that barren sort. Sort is like another way to say the group or the gang. And he calls them barren as in empty-headed or brainless. So the dumbest dummy of the whole dumb group. And this is the guy who Pyramus presented. In other words, who played or acted the part of Pyramus in their sport. Their sport just means their piece of entertainment, their play. You can also hear those hard P sounds of Pyramus presented and even a little bit in sport. So the guy playing Pyramus, in other words, bottom, forsook his scene. Forsook means left behind. And scene isn't quite like the scene of a play. It refers more specifically to the stage. So he left the stage and entered in a break. A break again is that thicket or bush, which was their backstage. And he goes on. When I did him at this advantage take, an ass's knoll I fix it on his head. So when I took him at this advantage means at this advantageous position I had over him. Like it gave me an advantage because he was hidden. So when I took him at this advantage, an ass is knoll. A knoll is another word for head. It's short for noddle, sort of like we would use the term noodle to refer to your head or your brains. Like use your noodle. Well, he gave him an ass's noodle. And he says, I fixed it on his head. A very specific verb, to fix it on his head. Almost like I welded it onto it. And he goes on, Anon his thisbe must be answered, and forth my mimic comes. So Anon, soon, his thisbe must be answered. So thisbe spoke her line, and when it's time to answer her back, forth my mimic comes. Mimic is almost related to the word mime. It's another name for an actor, you know, who mimics a character. And specifically, it refers to one who isn't very subtle. And notice how dramatic that line is. It isn't, and my mimic comes forth. It's, forth my mimic comes. It pushes the verb to the end of that thought. And you also get that cool back-to-back -back K sound of mimic and comes. And because he stops in the middle of the verse line, it sets up some drama. What's going to happen when he comes forth? Now, we already know, but Oberon is on the edge of his seat. And Puck goes on, 
when they him spy as wild geese that the creeping fowler eye or russet pated chuffs many in sort rising and cawing at the gun's report sever themselves and madly sweep the sky so at his sight away his fellows fly and at our stamp here o'er and o'er one falls so it's a long thought with a lot of parentheticals but when they him spy in other words when they see him but again pushing the verb to the end of the verse line as wild geese in the same way that wild geese that i the creeping fowler a fowler is just someone who hunts birds in other words fowl and what is he creeping he's creeping along the ground so his prey doesn't see him so when the wild geese see this guy hunting them or when russet pated chuffs great sounding word chuffs are jackdaws which is a kind of crow basically and russet pated means that they have that reddish brown head many in sort in sort is just another way to say a flock because jackdaws in particular are known to have these enormous flocks that darken the sky and see too that parallelism between the sort here and the barren sort he refers to earlier so it's almost like these idiots are becoming birds and flying off when they see the hunter and these chuffs are rising and cawing at the gun's report so they all take off and rise into the sky and they caw at the gun's report report is the gunshot any sudden loud noise so just like those two kinds of birds sever themselves which just means that they separate into several different directions they go flying off in every direction and madly sweep the sky madly remember was the word used to refer to puck here it means wildly they sweep the sky it's a beautiful verb they don't fly through the sky they sweep it because they're rushing across it and you can hear the emphasis of that alliteration on sweep and sky and that goes back to sever too and in the next line you see so so just like these birds all fly off crazily when they see a hunter or hear a gun so in the same way at his sight away his fellows fly so at the sight of bottom his fellows in other words his friends fly which is kind of a cool play on all that bird imagery it literally means to run away or flee but here it's birds actually flying across the sky and you have that fun alliteration of fellows and fly and he says at our stamp literally a stamp on the ground this goes back to something of the mythology of robin goodfellow it's a kind of rumpelstiltskin side he was rumored to stamp on the ground that's another reason why i think he isn't so much a beautiful fairy as he's sometimes done in productions but more like a goblin a little fire plug who's always chasing people around so at our stamp when i stamped which would be a cool thing to go back and put into the previous scene having him stamping behind them here or and or one falls so one of these guys who's running away from bottom falls o'er and o'er in other words over and over himself he somersaults he murder cries and help from athens calls you see that reordering of sentence structure not he cries murder and calls for help from athens but he murder cries and help from athens calls so you have two verbs at the ends of their thoughts in the same line and they're both verbs that start with that hard c sound cries and calls so he cries out the word murder and calls for help from athens not that there is any actual murder but he might be afraid he's going to be murdered by this monster and puck goes on with this story he says their sense thus weak lost with their fears thus strong made senseless things begin to do them wrong there's some real poetic technique folded into those lines so their sense thus weak and sense could mean two things one it could mean bodily senses like they lose the ability to see and hear right or it could just mean good sense in the way of brains so with their sense thus weak in other words this weak since they're freaking out it's lost all their senses are lost with their fears thus strong so since they have such strong fears they've lost their weak senses it's another example of that thing called an antithesis where you have the weak sense versus the strong fear you also have the parallel of thus weak and thus strong so having lost their weak senses it made senseless things begin to do them wrong and this is senseless not in our modern sense but an older sense that means inanimate basically it's something that can't sense anything an object so since their senses are weak senseless things just regular old objects begin to do them wrong start to hurt them and he elaborates on that he says for briars and thorns at their apparel snatch 
some sleeves, some hats from yielders, all things catch. For briars and thorns, briars are sort of prickly shrubs, and thorns are thorn bushes. At their apparel snatch, apparel just means clothes. So these thorns are as if reaching out and snatching at their clothes, so they're getting caught. Some sleeves, some hats, from yielders all things catch. So that's another sort of backward sentence. You see both of these lines, the verb again is pushed to the end of the line. It makes it stronger, but it also holds out the drama until the very end. So all things are catching, which here means to grab some sleeves and some hats from yielders. Yielders are just people who give things up. They're giving up their sleeves. They're giving up their hats to these plants. Maybe they're even giving up their pride. And then he describes the last thing he did. He says, I led them on in this distracted fear and left sweet Pyramus translated there. Distracted isn't like, oh, look, a pretty balloon. No, here it means confused or agitated or even crazed. So he's describing what he did in that last scene where he led them in this distracted fear, this crazed fear, and he left sweet Pyramus, sweet being ironic there, although it's also how he was referred to in that play. So you can put it in little fairy quotes there, sweet Pyramus. It means loving or attractive, but it's super ironic. So he left this Pyramus translated. There's that word again, meaning transformed. And the double irony is that you have a character from Ovid's Metamorphoses, Pyramus, being translated, being transformed. And that's the end of everything Puck knows, but that's not really what Oberon asked about. So Puck goes on and says, When in that moment, so it came to pass, Titania waked, and straightway loved an ass. Came to pass is just another way to say it happened. That Titania waked, she woke up, and straightway, immediately, right away, loved an ass, fell in love with a donkey. The funny thing, of course, is that he wasn't on stage to see this, but in a way, since we were, it's okay. Now, obviously, he probably went back and saw this afterwards, after he was done chasing the idiots around, but it's almost okay for us as audience members because we just assume he's seen everything we see. So it's a jump of logic that we go along with. And Oberon is pretty psyched. Not only was it a gross animal, but it was a monster. It was a half-human animal. And Oberon says, This falls out better than I could devise! Falls out means it turns out or it ends up better than I could devise, better than I even planned. So that's taken care of. And then he remembers the other part of this plan. He says, But hast thou yet latched the Athenian's eyes with the love juice, as I did bid thee do? So this verb latched is a little confusing. It might be related to the word leech, which means to moisten. So if you put that juice on the Athenian person's eyes. It could also be in some way related to something like latched onto, like you put it on his eyes. But it's a pretty obscure verb either way. In any event, have you put that love juice on his eyes? As I did bid thee do. In other words, as I asked you to do. And Puck has that handled too. He says, I took him sleeping. That is finished too. And the Athenian woman by his side. That when he waked, of force she must be eyed. So I took him. I took care of him while he was asleep. That's finished too. And the Athenian woman by his side. If you're just listening, this might sound that he put the juice on both their eyes, which is not what he did. All he's implying is that the Athenian woman was by his side because Oberon wanted him to make sure that she was there. She was the only thing he could see when he woke up, so he'd fall in love with her. As he makes clear that when he waked, a force she must be eyed. A force means necessarily, like by compulsion. She would have to be eyed. And notice he doesn't use the word seen. He uses the word eyed. And again, in this play, people are amazing at picking up their cues. Because as soon as they're talking about Athenians, in come two Athenians. It's Demetrius and Hermia. And this is a combination we haven't seen yet. And the first thing we're going to see is them figuring out that it's been screwed up. So Oberon says, stand close. This is the same Athenian. Stand close as in stand close to me. It could also mean be secret. In that other sense of close, maybe even be invisible. This is the same Athenian. And then Puck has that little aside. This is the woman, but not this the man. And that's the complication. Remember, the spell was supposed to be on Demetrius, but instead it was on Lysander, while Hermia was next to him. It just happened he woke up at the wrong time and saw the wrong woman. So Puck says, 
yeah, this is the Athenian woman, but not the Athenian man. So he's gotten the exact opposite people. And so they may have a little moment of silent, what are you talking about here? While the scene itself goes on. And Demetrius has evidently found her. Remember, he came to the forest in the first place looking for her because she ran away. And so he's pursuing her. He says, oh, why rebuke you him that loves you so? Why rebuke you him? Why are you, in other words, putting down the person that loves you so much? Instead, he says, lay breath so bitter on your bitter foe. Breath isn't our modern sense. It means her speech or her words. So lay such bitter breath, such mean words on your bitter foe. You know, talk this way to your enemy. And you can hear all those B sounds, breath and bitter, and you get bitter twice. Bitter is a wonderful word, too, because it almost sounds like what it is, pinched and awful. And she turns on him and says, now I but chide, but I should use thee worse, for thou, I fear, hast given me cause to curse. So he said that she rebuked him, and she says, now I but chide. I'm only scolding you. This isn't even rebuke, but I should use thee worse. Use here means treat, so I should treat you even worse than I do now. Why? For thou, I fear, hast given me cause to curse. So she's afraid that he's given her a reason to curse him. And you see those double C's, cause to curse. Again, it's very harsh sounding language, still in rhyme. And look at the pronouns for one second. He calls her you, and she calls him thou. Usually it's the other way around with men and women in these plays. He's being formal and respectful to her. He wants her to be nice to him. And she turns around and uses informal language, disrespectful language, because that's how she feels about him now. So what's that cause to curse that she's afraid he gave her? If thou hast slain Lysander in his sleep, being o'er shoes in blood, plunge in the deep and kill me too. Oh, that's what she's worried about, that he's slain Lysander, that he's killed Lysander in his sleep. Because remember, when she woke up, Lysander was gone. And she says, if you've killed him in his sleep, being or shoes in blood, now that you're literally wading in up to your ankles in blood. I love that image of or shoes in blood. Like you're in a puddle of blood so deep that it's up over the line of your shoes. So since you've already gotten up to the shoe line in blood by killing him, why don't you plunge in the deep and kill me too? You know, do a cannonball into a lake of blood by adding me to that lake. There's a very similar image in Macbeth, by the way, where he talks about the fact that he's halfway across a bloody river. And at this point, he might as well just keep going since it's the same distance across and back. So it's a very similar image. And notice how this thought ends. And kill me too. Not only is it a very short line, only four out of the ten syllables get used up, but they're almost all stressed syllables. And kill me too. It's simple and it's direct and it's stressed. She's really agitated. And having said this aloud, she starts to kind of freak out. She says, the sun was not so true unto the day as he to me. True here means loyal or devoted. So she's saying, not even the sun was as devoted to the day, and the sun and day go together a hundred percent, as he was to me. It's impossible. Would he have stolen away from sleeping Hermia? Stolen away means like sneaked away or escaped from me while I was sleeping. And you get that fun double S of stolen and sleeping. She goes on, I'll believe as soon this whole earth may be bored, and that the moon may through the center creep, and so displease his brother's noontide with the Antipodes. That's a very elaborate image. So she says, I'll believe as soon, just as soon as I'll believe that he left me while I was sleeping. I'll believe that this whole earth may be bored. Not bored like, what time is my sandwich coming? But bored through. Almost like there was a hole drilled through the whole earth. And hole not just in the sense of entire, but in the sense of intact or unbroken. So it's usually unbroken, but now it's drilled through. And that the moon may through the center creep. So I could just as soon believe this impossible thing that the earth is drilled through, and that the moon may creep through the center, in other words, pass through the center, and so displease her brother's noontide 
What's her brother's noontide? Well, the moon's brother is the sun. So her brother's noontide is the sun's noontime with the Antipodes. Antipodes sounds fancy and ancient, but it just means the opposite side of the earth. So instead of the usual cycle where the sun is followed by the moon, now the moon is jumping through the earth in the middle of noon and displeasing the sun. That's something as impossible as the idea that Lysander could leave her. And so she jumps to the only conclusion she can. It cannot be, but thou hast murdered him. Cannot be but is basically a double negative. It means it can't be anything else except for, or it even means it must be that you have murdered him. So should a murderer look, so dead, so grim. All these so's mean in this way, just like this. And the like this here is how Demetrius looks. So in exactly the way you look, that's how a murderer should look. So dead, not deceased, but deadly, threatening, so grim. And it's a cool poetical effect, that cascade of so's. So should a murderer look, so dead, so grim. And Demetrius picks up on her cue. He uses what is essentially comic wit. He says, so should the murdered look, and so should I, pierced through the heart with your stern cruelty. So she says, so should a murderer look. And he says, so should the murdered look. This is what a murdered person looks like. And so should I. So in case you're keeping track, that's five so's in two lines. So she says he looks like a murderer. He says, I look like the murdered. Why? Because he's been pierced through the heart with her stern cruelty. Stern meaning harsh or malevolent. This, by the way, is probably the only Bon Jovi reference in Shakespeare. Pierced through the heart. No? Okay. And it's also the doubling of an image that she just put into the play. That idea of the earth being bored through. Well, now the earth is his heart. And that's what's being drilled through with her cruelty. And he stays on that astronomical imagery. He says, Yet you, the murderer, look as bright, as clear as yonder Venus in her glimmering sphere. So he says she's the murderer because she's murdered his heart. And he's saying she looks as bright and clear, clear as in untroubled, as yonder Venus in her glimmering sphere. Venus is also known as the morning star or the evening star because it's such a bright planet and it's most visible in the morning and the evening, even before the other stars come out. And the glimmering sphere, again, is a reference to those crystal spheres that surround the Earth in which all the heavenly bodies are supposedly stuck. So he's saying she looks fine. She looks like Venus hanging out in her sphere. Notice also that Venus is the goddess of love. But she, of course, doesn't want to hear that way he turned that language around on her. She says, what's this to my Lysander? Like, what does all this crap have to do with my Lysander? How does this affect him? Where is he? Ah, good Demetrius, wilt thou give him me? She is full-on panicking now. Again, she assumes he knows exactly where Lysander is. She assumes he's killed him, and yet he has said nothing yet. So wilt thou give him me? Will you give him back to me? She is desperate, and Demetrius replies, I'd rather give his carcass to my hounds. Like, why would I give him to you? I would rather give his carcass, his dead body, to my hounds. In other words, my hunting dogs. That's how little I value him. And she picks up on the hounds with her own wit and says, Out dog! Out cur! Cur is another name for dog, usually a derogatory, like, mangy name for a dog. But she says, you want to give the body of the person I love to your hunting dogs? Well, you're the dog now. Get out of here. Thou drivest me past the bounds of maiden's patience. The bounds are the borders of the limits of a maiden's patience. Patience just means composure in general, and not just composure, but a maiden's composure. A maiden is a young woman, especially a virgin, and these are people who are supposed to be beyond reproach. They're supposed to be incredibly well-behaved. And he's driving her past the limits of that behavior. And she says, hast thou slain him then? So she assumes that carcass reference means that he actually is admitting to killing Lysander. So have you slain him? Well then, henceforth be never numbered among men. Henceforth, from here on, be never numbered among men. Numbered means counted, or even something like considered. So from now on, you should never be considered a man again. But we get that fun alliteration of never and numbered. And she's really going after him. Oh, once tell true. Tell true even for my sake. So once in your life, just tell the truth. Tell true even for my sake. 
so you get those hard T sounds of tell and true, which is repeated twice. This may be a pretty good example of this literary technique called chiasmus, where you have the same phrase meeting in the middle of the line. Oh, once tell true and then pick it up, tell true even for my sake. And you see how disordered her language is getting? A lot of breaks in the middle of the lines, so it's sounding jumpier and out of control. She goes on, Durst thou have looked upon him being awake? So durst is the past tense of dare. So would you even dare to look at him when he was awake? And hast thou killed him sleeping? So you wouldn't even have dared to look on him when he was awake. So you killed him sleeping. So that might be another one of those antitheses. Lysander awake versus Lysander sleeping. And she says, oh, brave touch. In other words, that was a really noble act on your part. You were so brave. Could not a worm, an adder, do so much? Like kill somebody asleep? Well, a worm, which can refer to a regular worm or even just to a snake. An adder, which is specifically a poisonous snake. So either she's listing two different animals, or she's specifying what kind of snake it is. But any low poisonous animal could have killed someone while they were asleep. And she says, in fact, an adder did it. For with doubler tongue than thine, thou serpent, never adder stung. So a poisonous snake did do it. Why? For with doubler tongue, more double tongue. Double here means forked, in the sense that snakes literally have a forked tongue. But there's also a bit of a pun on that sense of two-faced. He has a double tongue means that he says one thing and does another. For with a more forked or a more lying tongue than yours, you serpent, no adder, no poisonous snake ever stung. And stung here means bit. So she's unloaded both barrels on him and he says, you spend your passion on a misprized mood. So passion means emotion. It could also refer to a passionate speech. So he says, you're spending all of that on a misprized mood. Misprized means mistaken. And mood here probably means something like fury. Like you're wasting all this emotion for a mistaken anger. But it's a very specific choice of language. Misprized mood. You hear the double M. I am not guilty of Lysander's blood, nor is he dead for aught that I can tell. So I'm not guilty of his blood basically means I'm not guilty of his murder, of spilling his blood. Nor is he dead for aught that I can tell. For anything I can tell, he's probably fine. And she's still angry at him, but this is good news. She says, I pray thee, tell me then that he is well. She's really falling apart. She's an emotional wreck. She's been alone in the woods. I pray thee, I ask you, I beg you, tell me that he's well. Tell me he's doing okay. And then Demetrius has a really slimy response. He says, and if I could, what should I get there for? And if just means if. So if I could tell you he's fine, what should I get there for? You know, what would I get as a result of telling you this? Like, will you love me if I tell you he's fine? Probably not. What'll he get? She says, a privilege never to see me more. A privilege is like a benefit or even an authorization from her. Never to see me more. Never to see me anymore. That's what you're going to get. Congratulations. And from thy hated presence part I so. So I'm parting. I'm leaving your hated presence. There's also the alliteration of presence and part. The first folio actually doesn't have that last word, so. It just says part I. But it needs to rhyme with the next line. So that's what they inserted. And she finishes with, see me no more, whether he be dead or no. Again, there's that seeing and vision. I don't want you to see me anymore, whether he be dead or no. Basically, whether he is dead or not. I don't ever want to see you again. And off she runs. And Demetrius has no idea what that was. He says, there is no following her in this fierce vein. Vein isn't our modern anatomical sense of like veins and arteries. It's more like a state of mind. So when she's in this fierce state of mind, you can't follow her. And very conveniently, he says, here, therefore, for a while I will remain. And in fact... So sorrow's heaviness doth heavier grow, for debt that bankrupt sleep doth sorrow owe, which now in some slight measure it will pay, if for his tender here I make some stay. So this is a pretty elaborate metaphor. It's a financial metaphor. So sorrow's heaviness. Heaviness can mean sadness, but it can also mean sleepiness or drowsiness. But that heaviness is growing heavier. Why? For, because of, the debt that bankrupt sleep. 
Bankrupt's just another way to say bankrupt. And here it means a bankrupt person, someone who's in debt to others. And here that person in debt is sleep itself. And who's its creditor? It's sorrow. That's why sorrow's heaviness grew, because sleep owed it a bunch of money, which now, in some slight measure, it will pay. So sleep is just going to throw a few bucks that he owes to sorrow in its direction, which to him means he's going to take a little nap. He's been so sad that he's sort of forgotten to sleep, and he's going to have sleep pay that debt, if for his tender here, a tender means an offering, especially a financial offering, I make some stay. Make some stay just means stop for a while. So if I stop for just a little while for sleep to make this payment, in other words, to nap. And it's awfully convenient that he falls asleep just when they need him to fall asleep. I've seen some productions where actually Oberon puts a spell on Demetrius here to get him to fall asleep because he realizes how screwed up this all is. And so Demetrius takes his convenient nap and immediately Oberon comes forward and says to Puck, What hast thou done? And then he answers his own question. He says, Thou hast mistaken quite, and laid the love juice on some true love's sight. So you've mistaken quite. Quite here means utterly or completely. And you put this juice on someone who is in love with someone else. Of thy misprision must perforce ensue some true love turned, and not a false turned true. So of thy misprision, from your mistaking or misunderstanding, must perforce, must necessarily ensue. So because you made that mistake, the logical consequence is some true love turned. And there's another name for transformed. And not a false turned true. Because remember, the whole point of this in the first place was to turn a false love true. It was to turn Demetrius into Helena's true love again. But no, actually he's transformed someone who is in love, Lysander, who's now in love with the wrong person entirely. And there's a little bit of antithesis in that line too. The true love versus the false love. So it's never fun to get yelled at by your boss for screwing up. But Puck has a great excuse. He says, Then fate or rules that one man holding troth, a million fail, confounding oath on oath. He says fate or rules. Well, fate must have just taken over and beaten out our plans. Why? That one man holding troth. In other words, since for every one man who stays true to his vows of love, a million fail. A million men go back on their vows of love, confounding oath on oath. Confounding here means spoiling or doing away with all the oaths that they swore in the past. So he's saying this stuff happens all the time in regular love. It must just be fate. Nice try blaming me and the magic. And in a way, this is another way to get under that metaphor of love as magic. Puck almost turns to the audience on this line. He says, stuff like this happens all the time in love. You don't need any magic to make that happen. People are always breaking their oaths to the people they say they love. Nice try, though. So Oberon gives him another command. But Oberon doesn't want to hear this excuse, and he needs to fix it. So he gives Puck another command. He says, About the wood go swifter than the wind, and Helena of Athens look thou find. So about the wood, around the woods, go swifter than the wind, faster than the wind goes, and look thou find. In other words, be sure that you find this girl named Helena of Athens. He probably should have used names in the first part, but he didn't know. All fancy sick she is, and pale of cheer, with sighs of love that cost the fresh blood dear. That's an awesome adjective. Fancy sick. Fancy is related to that word fantasy, which is to say imagination. Here it's more like infatuation or love, but she's sick with that. And pale of cheer. Cheer here is another way to say expression or look on her face. So her face is totally pale with sighs of love that costs the fresh blood dear. So back in this time, sighs were believed to actually deplete your spirit because they thought that breath and spirit arose out of the blood. So every time you sigh it out, it was costing the fresh blood dear. Fresh means young or eager because she's still young and costing the blood dearly, as in expensively. So she's wasting away her life because she's so sick and pale and sighing. By some illusion, see thou bring her here. So use some magic trick to bring her to this spot. I'll charm his eyes against she do appear. 
against she do appear here means in anticipation of her appearing here. So he's going to put the spell on Demetrius's eyes before Puck arrives with Helena. And since Puck needs a little poem every time he runs around the world, he says, I go, I go, look how I go, swifter than arrow from the Tartar's bow. And you get the cool rhythm in that first line. I go, I go, look how I go. We get it, you're going, now go. Swifter than arrow, faster than an arrow, from the bow of a Tartar. And Tartars are Mongols, basically the Asian people who conquered these large stretches of the world in the Middle Ages. And they were specifically known for their bows and shooting abilities. They could shoot from their horse very famously. And he's saying he'll be faster than one of their arrows. Now, of course, Oberon had asked him to go around the woods swifter than the wind, but I guess Tartar's arrow will have to do. And he zooms off. And at that moment, Oberon goes right over to Demetrius and he places the spell on him. He puts the juice in his eyes and he says, Flower of this purple dye, hit with Cupid's archery, sink in apple of his eye. Notice we're back to that magical fairy meter again. Da 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 da. So flower of this purple dye, in other words, purple color, hit with Cupid's archery. Remember, it was created purple by Cupid hitting it with an arrow. Sink in apple of his eye. I think we're very familiar with that phrase, the apple of your eye. But what it literally means is your pupil, the black spot in the middle of your eye that is round like an apple. When his love he doth espy, let her shine as gloriously as the Venus of the sky. So when he espies his love, in other words, when he sees or looks on his love, the person he loves, let her shine as gloriously as the Venus of the sky. It's actually interesting to see him mention Venus again, that morning and evening star that Demetrius just used to talk about Hermia. Well, now it's going to refer to Helena. And what the juice is going to do is make her shine as brightly as that star. When thou wakest, if she be by, beg of her for remedy. So when you wake up, if she be by, in other words, if she's nearby, beg of her for remedy. Remedy here has that medical sense, but it also means relief. So basically what Oberon is saying is that Demetrius is going to beg her for her love to relieve him. That's how bad he's going to feel. He's going to need the remedy of her love. Notice, by the way, the rhyme scheme. All eight of these lines rhyme with each other. Not as much anymore, but in the day they certainly did. And Puck, true to his word, comes right back. He is that fast. Or maybe Helena was just really close and he cheated. But notice when he comes back, now he's using this fairy meter too. They are in full-on spell form. And Puck says, Captain of our fairy band, Helena is here at hand, and the youth mistook by me, pleading for a lover's fee. So Captain of our fairy band, band here isn't like they have a rock band that plays at TGI Fridays on Wednesday, although I would totally see that band. No, it means more like a troop or a company. There's even some military sense to it. So Oberon is the captain of that company. Helena is here at hand. In other words, she's close by. And the youth mistook by me. So the young man, in other words, Lysander, the one I mistook, that I mistakenly put the juice on, is with her pleading for a lover's fee. That's a really interesting phrase. There's a lot of money talk all of a sudden in this play. He's pleading, he's begging her for a lover's fee, as in a payment. And what's the payment? Well, it's having his love returned, or maybe just hugs and kisses from her. But he's begging to be paid with her love. And then Puck goes on. Shall we there fond pageancy? Fond here not in our modern sense of devoted, but foolish or silly. And pageant is a show or a spectacle, almost like the play that the mechanicals were going to put on. But here, the show or the spectacle, the pageant, is just these lovers acting like idiots. And notice, by the way, the verb see is pushed to the end of the line again. Puck is really excited about seeing what's happening. And he says, Lord, what fools these mortals be. Hey, a super famous line. But I have to say, I think usually misunderstood. It's usually delivered as in, God, these mortals are idiots. 
But actually, he's not saying God because he's a fairy. What does he care about God? His lord is Oberon. So he's saying to Oberon, sir, these mortals are idiots. By the way, look at his rhymes now, too. He started out with a regular old rhyme, band in hand, and then the next four lines all rhyme with each other, just as Oberon's did. So there's a sense of acceleration, and Oberon quickly tells him, stand aside. The noise they make will cause Demetrius to awake. So let's get out of the way, and we'll just let their noise wake up Demetrius. Notice, by the way, that they're not worried that Demetrius is going to fall in love with Lysander, because God forbid gay stuff. That would make for a much more interesting version of this play. No, what's going to happen is that Demetrius is going to wake up and see Helena. And the prospect of this immediately sinks in for Puck. He says, then will two at once woo one. So he realizes immediately, if both Demetrius and Lysander are in love with Helena, two at once, in other words, at the same time, are going to woo, they're going to court one person. And this is going to be awesome. He says, that must needs be sport alone. Must needs means necessarily, or it has to be sport alone. Sport as in amusement or recreation, all on its own. So regardless of what else they were doing, just the fact that two people are going to be in love with the same person at once, that's going to be amazing. And he concludes, And those things do best please me that befall preposterously. So to reorder this a little bit, those things that befall preposterously do please me best. But you see how Shakespeare slows down this line with all those monosyllables? Then will two at once woo one, that must needs be sport, and then one non-monosyllable word alone. And those things do best please me, that, and then he gets into this huge word, befall preposterously. So it makes it much more luxurious. So you have slow, 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 awesome. And befall means happen. And preposterously, you've probably heard that word before, it just means absurdly or crazily. But if you go back to the origins of that word, it literally means switched back to front, as in pre and post. So he's talking specifically about the mixing up of all these loves, because it's now backwards to forwards. And as promised, in comes Helena with Lysander chasing quick behind. And he says to her, why should you think that I should woo in scorn? Because remember last time we saw them? He professed his love to Helena and she said, you're making fun of me. So in scorn means like mockery or insulting. And he says, why would you think that I'm wooing you as an insult or to make fun of you? Scorn and derision never come in tears. So no one cries when they're making fun of you. Look when I vow, I weep. Look when is actually an idiom that could mean something like whenever. So whenever I vow, whenever I promise I love you, I weep. And vows so born, in their nativity, all truth appears. Vows so born, in other words, vows that are born in tears, in their nativity, in their birth, all truth appears. So that's his way to verify that he actually does love her because he's crying. And he finishes his little speech with, how can these things in me seem scorn to you, bearing the badge of faith to prove them true? He comes back to that word scorn again. How can these things in me, how can all these things I say to you, seem scorn to you, bearing the badge of faith? A badge is any outward sign or symbol. And specifically, servants in noble houses used to wear badges on their livery. They're like official uniform to identify the noble house they served. And this one is the badge of faith. In other words, reliability or trustworthiness. So it's as though his tears are the badge he wears on his clothes. Before we go on, just look back at his rhymes for a second. First, you get this ABAB rhyme, scorn, tears, born, appears. This is what is known as a quatrain. And then you get you true, which is a couplet. It's almost like the last third of a sonnet. So it's a very consciously poetic form. And what Helen is going to do in her reply is to call him out on that by stealing his exact form. Almost like she's accusing him of trying to use fancy poetry to get in her pants. Or, I don't know, toga. She says, you do advance your cunning more and more. Advance here can mean display, but there's also some sense of like an advancing army. So he's using his cunning, his smarts, to advance his army and conquer her. When truth kills truth, 
oh devilish holy fray when truth kills truth what's the truth well it's a true love vow so when one true love vow kills another true love vow and what are those vows well it's his vow for helena it kills his old vows for hermia so she says when one of those truths kills another truth oh devilish holy fray a fray is a fight but it isn't a holy fight it's a devilish holy fight it's an oxymoron basically so it's devilish and holy at once because there's true love in it but it's defeating another true love and she reminds him exactly what she was talking about these vows are hermia's i.e they rightly belong to hermia because they were made to her first the same vows you're swearing to me you already swore to someone else will you give her or give or or give over means to desert or abandon are you just going to throw her out that easily weigh oath with oath and you will nothing weigh so if you weigh one oath against another oath and it's the same construction as truth kills truth here it's oath with oath and you will nothing weigh so what is she talking about she goes on to explain this image your vows to her and me put in two scales will even weigh and both as light as tails so if you put your vows to her in one scale pan and your vows to me in another scale pan and weighed them opposite each other they would weigh even in other words they'd weigh the same but why because they're both as light as tails so yeah one nothing really does weigh as much as another nothing because that's how good your vows turned out to be to both of us both as light as tales tales here are like rumors or false stories but they're light they're insubstantial so they weren't true love oaths they were tales so you see she almost does a parody of his little sonnetlet she's using his poetry against him and now they're going to go back to that regular rhyme lysander's caught out a little bit and he says i had no judgment when to her i swore so yeah those oaths i swore to her weren't really worth anything because i didn't know what i was talking about and she picks up on that judgment and says nor none in my mind now you give her or there's that phrase give her or again which means to abandon her or desert her so not only didn't you have any judgment back then when you swore your oaths to her but you don't have any judgment now in my mind in my opinion now that you're getting rid of her and lysander pulls out another trump card he says demetrius loves her and he loves not you oh this is mean he's saying it's fine because demetrius is in love with hermia and more to the point he doesn't love her you see the monosyllables right at the end of that line to really let it sink in he loves not you and then just as things get really cruel as if on cue demetrius wakes up and sees her just in the same way that lysander sort of shot up and swore his love for her demetrius is already swearing his love to her as soon as his eyes open he says oh helen goddess nymph perfect divine but hold on a second what happened to the rhyme where's the rhyme for you it's totally missing from the play and it gives a sort of off kilter feel to these lines now he's taking over the rhyme here also the rhythm in that first line oh helen goddess nymph perfect divine he's minting these new descriptions one by one and there's a word we've heard before nymph oberon used it to describe helena earlier it's a beautiful mythological nature spirit and he's calling her a goddess a nymph divine these are all these godlike words and immediately he starts waxing poetic in a way we haven't really heard demetrius do almost at all in this play to what my love shall i compare thine ein so first of all he uses the word ein which in addition to rhyming is a very archaic old poetic sounding word and this shall i compare your eyes thing it sounds a lot like the sonnets which actually shakespeare probably wrote around this time as well but this is formal sounding love poetry so what shall i compare your eyes to in my poem crystal is muddy so crystal this beautiful see-through gem is too muddy compared to your eyes that's how beautiful they are and how clear and he goes on oh how ripe and show thy lips those kissing cherries tempting grow how ripe in show means how ripe in appearance or display thy lips those kissing cherries it's a very strange image of her lips like cherries that are kissing like cherries growing on a tree so that they touch this is an image we're going to see again in this scene by the way and he says they grow temptingly almost like you see them on the tree and you want to pick them and he has more poetry he says 
That pure congealed white, high Taurus's snow, fanned with the eastern wind, turns to a crow when thou holdst up thy hand. So congealed is a word we have today, but usually it means something like gross or gelatinous. It comes from the Latin words for frozen together. So it's actually a very appropriate description for snow, and specifically high Taurus's snow, not Taurus like the constellation. It's a mountain range in southern Turkey that is known for having snow caps. So it's this famously white snow fanned with the eastern wind, eastern I suppose because it's in Turkey, turns to a crow. So this beautiful white thing turns into an ugly black thing. A crow, which is jet black colored, when thou holdst up thy hand. So when you hold your hand in front of that snow, which before looked white, your hand is so much whiter that now the snow looks like it's the color of a crow, and it's black by comparison. This, by the way, is a very similar image to one in Romeo and Juliet, which Shakespeare probably wrote around the same time as this play. This is in Juliet's gallop a pacey, fiery-footed steed speech, where she's talking about Romeo, and she says that him compared to the knight is like white snow on a raven's back. So Shakespeare is allowed to steal from himself, thank you very much. And he's just described her hand, and he says, oh, let me kiss this princess of pure white, this seal of bliss. It's a really interesting and specific word choice princess of pure white. You know, princess is obviously a member of the royalty, but here it's probably something more like the highest form or the sovereign of pure white. And he's talking about her hand. He also describes it as the seal of bliss. Seal as in the sign or the token of bliss, of happiness to come. And you can see how poetic his language gets toward the end of this. It's almost too much. You get those P sounds of princess and pure, but also the final sounds, all those S's, kiss, princess, seal, bliss. It's almost like he's whispering to her by the end of this. And here it is, the moment she's been waiting for the entire play. The man she loved cast her off, and she followed him like a dog into the woods. No matter how often he tells her he doesn't love her, and then all of a sudden, everything's perfect. He sits up, he tells her he loves her in beautiful poetry, and she can't accept it. Because after all this poetry from him, her first response is, Oh, spite. Oh, hell. And spite means malice or ill will. She thinks that's what he's doing to her. He offers her love and it's hell to her. And she jumps right to a conclusion. She says, I see you all are bent to set against me for your merriment. So now not only does she think Lysander is mocking her, but now she thinks Demetrius has joined with him. She says, you're all bent. In other words, you're all determined to set against me, which is sort of a military term, to attack me for your merriment, for your fun. If you were civil and knew courtesy, you would not do me thus much injury. And courtesy is really proper behavior, courtly behavior, how you should treat a woman. So if you had that behavior, you would not do me thus much, in other words, so much injury, which confusingly probably means something like insult. You wouldn't insult me so much. She thinks this is a trick. She goes on, can you not hate me, as I know you do, but you must join in souls to mock me too? So can you not hate me? Isn't it enough that you hate me, as I know you do, even though, to be clear, they don't, but you must join in souls to mock me too. Join in souls is a great phrasing. It just means join together, but a deep bond. So they're getting together deeply to mock her, to make fun of her too. It's not enough just to hate her as Demetrius has been doing for most of the play. And she goes after their manlyhood. She says, if you were men, as men you are in show, you would not use a gentle lady so to vow and swear and super praise my parts when I am sure you hate me with your hearts. She calls them men in show, like in appearance or display. Demetrius just used that phrase, ripe in show. So she says they're men in show only. They pretend to be men, but actually they treat women terribly. She says, if you were men, you would not use a gentle lady so. Use here like treat. And gentle can be kind, but it also has some sense of nobility, like a high-born woman in this way. And what's the way? To vow and swear. You know, those oaths of love they've been making to her. 
and super praise my parts. That's a great verb. And probably a coinage of Shakespeare. He made it up himself. It's not just praise, it's super praise. You probably get the sense, but it means something like hyper praise or over praise. And my parts, well, parts can mean qualities or attributes of any kind. They can be physical parts, like the literal parts of her body, which is what Demetrius just did. Or they can be her good qualities of behavior or personality. She's rejecting their praise. Why? Because she says she's sure you hate me with your hearts. So you say one thing, but in your hearts, you actually hate me. And you can hear the vehemence of those double H's, hate and hearts. She goes on, you both are rivals and love Hermia, and now both rivals to mock Helena. It's a cool parallel construction of those two lines. So both of you are rivals. It's something like that modern sense we have of rivals as competitors, but it can also mean partners. So they're partners in their love of Hermia, but now they've become partners in their mockery of Helena. This is where it's useful to have two heroines whose names sound a lot alike. When you want to tell them apart, that is not so useful. Way to go, Shakespeare. Again, if you're casting this play, cast a Hermia and a Helena who look really different. And she's getting really worked up now. She says, a trim exploit, a manly enterprise to conjure tears up in a poor maid's eyes. Trim exploit means something like a fine enterprise. Trim usually has some sense of like good looking, like the way you're dressed. And this is all ironic. Like, this is a really nice enterprise you got here. So manly. To do what? To conjure tears up. Conjure means to make up here, but there's also a magical sense which is fitting for a play about magic. And in the same way that Shakespeare uses magic to talk about love, here he's using magic to talk about hate. Because where are they conjuring up those tears? In her eyes, the sight of magic and love in this play. In a poor maid's eyes. And maid, of course, can refer to a young woman, but also specifically to a virgin, someone with a good reputation, with your derision. And derision, deriding, is like mockery. Again, she's going after them on honor terms one more time. None of noble sort would so offend a virgin and extort a poor soul's patience all to make you sport. So remember that word sort? It can mean a group of any kind. Here it probably means something more like rank or class. And you can hear the harshness in that alliteration. None of noble sort would so offend a virgin, going back to her honorable virginity again, and extort, not quite like extortion in our modern criminal sense. Here it means something more like torture or abuse, a poor soul's patience. Patience being like composure, what she can take. They're torturing that, all to make you sport. Sport as in amusement or recreation. Puck, by the way, used the same word earlier. So obviously someone's enjoying this. And you can see at the end of this long harangue at them, Shakespeare slows down the language a little bit. We get all these stressed syllables. Poor soul's patience. Make you sport. And we get some really hard consonants here. Poor patience. Make sport. This is someone who's melting down a little bit. Everything's upside down and she doesn't trust it. Remember that part earlier about how she could never deserve Demetrius's love, let alone have it? I think that's coming back in a big way here. And Lysander senses an opening here. He says, you are unkind, Demetrius, because he thinks that she's talking just to Demetrius. And he says to him, be not so, for you love Hermia. This you know I know. Yeah, don't mock her this way. He assumes Demetrius is mocking her too with this sudden love profession. Not only does he know that Demetrius loves Hermia, he says Demetrius knows that Lysander knows. And then he makes a very public declaration. He says, And here, with all good will, with all my heart, in Hermia's love, I yield you up my part. Oh, so self-sacrificing of him. With all good will, with all my heart, he says, I yield you up my part. Part is like a share. So I surrender my share in Hermia's love over to you. You can have her, buddy. And he says, And yours of Helena to me bequeath, whom I do love and will do to my death. So yours, your part, your share of Helena's love, bequeath to me. Bequeath means to hand over. So give that to me, because I love Helena and will love her until I die. Strong words. And Helena is shattered. She says, 
Never did mockers waste more idle breath. Breath here means speech, words. And idle means useless or worthless. Like, I get it, you're making fun of me. Why are you wasting all this energy? I feel bad. Congratulations. Notice, by the way, this is a triple rhyme. Bequeath and death may not sound like they rhyme, but they do, as does breath. And really, the effect of that is just to extend the rhyme. It gives you almost a sense of the ridiculousness of what's going on. It's still going? Oh, my God. Demetrius doesn't want to hear this. He says, Lysander, keep thy Hermia. I don't want your share, buddy. I will none, which means I want nothing to do with her. Like, I don't want any of your Hermia. If e'er I loved her, all that love is gone. If e'er I means if I ever loved her before. Well, now all that love is gone. My heart to her, but as guest-wise sojourned, and now to Helen is it home returned, there to remain. This is a really cool and unusual word choice on Shakespeare's part. Guest-wise, probably another thing he coined. It just means like a guest or a visitor. And we think of the word sojourned as meaning something like traveled, but what it actually means is stayed somewhere temporarily, like at a hotel. Almost like you have a friend in another city and you go sleep on their couch for a night. And he's saying that's what his heart did with Hermia. It went over to her house for a little while, but now his heart is returned home to Helen. And you get that fun double H of Helen and home, there to remain. So it's going to stay home forever. No more Hermia trips. And Lysander is having this so little that he actually interrupts Demetrius mid-line. He says, Helen, it is not so. So Demetrius can't even finish his verse line. And Demetrius snaps right back at being interrupted. He says, disparage not the faith thou dost not know, lest to thy peril thou abide dear. So disparage, don't denigrate or put down the faith thou dost not know. Now, faith here can be like swearing your faith, like your constancy in your love, but it can also be something more like a religious belief. So that's how devoted he is to Helena. He's saying that it's a faith. And he's saying Lysander couldn't possibly know it, lest to thy peril, peril as in like close personal danger to his body, thou abide dear. Abide is an old-timey word that means pay. Here's some more weird financial talk for some reason. So don't say bad things about my love for her, or else you may have to pay dearly for it with your own safety. So now the plot has become truly twisted up. Now instead of everybody loving someone else, now two people love the same person, and one person, the one who's off stage, isn't loved by anybody at all, which, as you might imagine, will be a surprise to her. And conveniently enough, Shakespeare knows exactly when to bring her on stage, because Demetrius looks up and sees her and says, Look where thy love comes. Look where the person you love is coming. Yonder is thy dear. Over there is your dear. I would just like to point out, Shakespeare has just rhymed dear with dear. That is some weak pop music sauce, Shakespeare. I expect better of you. And remember, Hermia is panicked. She hasn't seen Lysander since he disappeared when they were asleep in the middle of the forest. So she has been looking all over for him. And suddenly she's heard his voice yelling off in the distance. And so when she comes in, don't forget, she is overjoyed to see him. She comes in with a huge smile on her face and says, Dark night that from the eye his function takes, the ear more quick of apprehension makes. Oh, a poetic comparison. I would have said, hey, how's it going? But sure, dark night. So what is she saying? Dark night that from the eye his function takes. Basically his ability to see. Because at night your eye doesn't work. So night takes away the function of the eye. The ear more quick of apprehension makes. And apprehension here means something like perception or the ability to catch sound. So even as the night makes it impossible for the eye to work, it makes the ear work even better. And she goes on in the same vein. She says, wherein it doth impair the seeing sense, it pays the hearing double recompense. There's paying again. All this money stuff is very odd. Wherein, and here that probably means something like in the same way or at the same time, it doth impair the seeing sense, that double S of seeing and sense, it pays the hearing double recompense. And recompense means payment or compensation. So it takes away from the eye, but it pays the ear double. This, by the way, is something Shakespeare does a fair amount, which is that he'll underline things by repeating them in a slightly different language. If you happen to be cutting this play, 
you could probably cut one of these two. Not that you should, it's a pretty short play, but if you wanted to, you could. And what do all these comparisons have to do with anything? Well, she says, Thou art not by mine eye, Lysander found. She didn't find him by seeing. She says, Mine ear, I thank it, brought me to thy sound. This is one of the few times in literature when someone thanks their ear. So that explains what she was talking about in these last four lines. She found him because she heard him, not because she saw him. So she's happy to see him, but she has a question. She says, but why unkindly didst thou leave me so? So unkindly can have our sense of meanly, but there's also some sense of almost like unnaturally or inhumanely. The kind is humankind, and you're not like that. This, by the way, is the same term Lysander just used about Demetrius. He says, you're unkind. So why did you leave me that way? It was really inhumane of you. So she starts to get angry after she's relieved to see him. And I think she's probably assuming he'll apologize, but instead he says, Why should he stay whom love doth press to go? And press here, you get a sense of it physically. It means to urge, or literally push. So why should a person stay if love is urging him to go? And Hermia picks right up on his language, that thing about love pressing, and she uses the same term. She says, What love could press Lysander from my side? And then he uses that same wit cue again. He picks up on her love and Lysander, and he says, Lysander's love that would not let him bide, fair Helena, who more engilds the night than all yon fiery O's and eyes of light. So she used love in a general sense, like the feeling of love, and he uses it more specifically as the person you love, which in this case is Helena. And it's that same love that would not let him bide. Bide means to remain or stay with Hermia, presumably. And who is his love? Fair Helena, beautiful Helena, who more engilds the night. Here he goes into poetry now. Engilds means to make golden, so basically illuminates the night. She does that more than all yon fiery O's and eyes of light. And actually, I think if you're just listening to this, you might think of them as the letter O and the letter I, but look at the spelling. Eyes as in E-Y-E-S. There's that word again. And what are O's? Well, they're round-shaped things, circles, spheres, so basically stars and planets. And that's what the eyes of light are. If you look up in the sky, it looks like the stars are little eyes looking back at you. And he's saying that Helena lights up the night more than the moon and the stars. Jan here means those over there, so he's presumably pointing to them as he says this. And presumably Hermia's in shock now, but Lysander keeps going. He says, why seekst thou me? Like, why are you looking to find me? Could not this make thee know the hate I bear thee made me leave thee so? So big question here, what is the this? Could not this make thee know? I guess this could be his language. Some productions will actually have him come over to her and kind of shove her away. But whatever he does, he wants it to make her know that the hate I bear thee, in other words, the hate I feel towards you, made me leave thee so, leave you in this way. And Hermia's world just comes crashing down at this moment. She says, you speak not as you think. It's a nice opposition of those two verbs. Like what you're saying on the outside isn't what you think on the inside. It cannot be. You hear how choppy that language just got after his long lines? You speak not as you think. It cannot be. And Helena, that perpetual victim, comes to a very strange conclusion. She says, lo, she is one of this confederacy. And lo is a small word that can mean something like behold or look. She is one. She's a part of this confederacy. Not like she's joining up with General Lee or anything. Confederacy means an alliance, or more specifically, a conspiracy. So now she thinks that because Hermia's acting this way, Hermia is in on this plan to make fun of her. Helena does have a tendency to self-dramatize. But that's what you do when you're in love. And to be honest, when you're human, you see everything through your own lens. You blow everything small up into a big deal. And now that it's popped into her head, she can't think of anything else. She says, now I perceive they have conjoined all three to fashion this false sport in spite of me. I perceive they have conjoined all three. Not like they're conjoined triplets, but like they've all joined together, all three of them, to fashion this false sport. The verb fashion means something like arrange or create. 
this false sport. There's that word sport again, that entertainment or amusement that she used before. But in this case, it's a false sport. False meaning like unfair or even traitorous. In spite of me. And that's a very different use of in spite of than we use in a modern sense, which is almost like despite. Here it means to annoy or to irritate me. So they all join together to create this amusement at my expense. And the angrier she gets, the more poetical her language gets. You see fashion and false and sport and spite. By the way, the other thing you'll see is four rhymes in a row. B, confederacy, three, me. The pot is really boiling over here. And in fact, it boils over so much that it explodes. All rhyme goes out of this scene here. This is like one of those moments in the cartoon where someone's head gets red and smoke starts coming out of it. And now that she's already gone after the two boys, she's going to turn on Hermia. Remember, her oldest friend in the world. She says, injurious Hermia, most ungrateful maid. Have you conspired? Have you with these contrived to bait me with this foul derision? Injurious, not usually a literal injury, something more like insulting. Most ungrateful maid. Maid again being a young woman or a virgin. And again, there are supposed to be specific behaviors associated with someone like that. Have you conspired? Have you with these, in other words, with these guys, contrived, which means to plot or a scheme, to bait me? And bait means to harass or torment. With this foul derision. Foul means evil or terrible. And derision is mockery. And this realization, even though it's totally fake, is heartbreaking for her. Again, her oldest friend. So she says, Is all the counsel that we two have shared, the sisters' vows, the hours that we have spent when we have chid the hasty-footed time for parting us, oh, is all forgot? So counsel sounds a little formal, but it just means private communications, almost like secrets that we've talked about. So all the private talks we've had over the years... The sisters' vows. Maybe they swore that they'd be like sisters. The hours that we have spent when we have chid the hasty-footed time for parting us. It's a beautiful sentence. What does it mean? We've chid the hasty-footed time. Chid means scolded or even yelled at. The hasty-footed time. It's a cool adjective to describe time. Having fast feet because it runs so fast. What are they angry at fast time for? For parting us. In other words, for separating us. Maybe their parents came to pick them up after school and they had to be separated. And they were angry at time for passing. Oh, is all forgot? Have you forgotten all those beautiful moments we had? All school days, friendship, childhood, innocence? And there's another all on top of that all forgot. All school days, friendship. All friendship from when we were in school. And if he could, he'd probably add another all if he had the syllables. All childhood, innocence? And then she's going to conjure up a specific picture of their time together. She says, We, Hermia, like two artificial gods, have with our needles created both one flower, both on one sampler, sitting on one cushion, both warbling of one song, both in one key, as if our hands, our sides, voices and minds had been incorporate. And you can really hear what Shakespeare's doing in the language here with those repetitions of one. It's sort of like what he did with Lysander earlier on when he was trying to convince Hermia to let him sleep next to her. That part about two bosoms and one troth. All those repetitions of one give this passage a real momentum. They really hold it together. So what is she saying? Like two artificial gods. So this is a word that's really difficult to understand when you actually hear it in production or when you're reading it. Because artificial to us today means fake. But here it means someone who artifices. Someone who creates. Someone who's creative, artistic, artsy-craftsy even. So we're like two gods who make things, just as God made the world. So like we were gods, with our needles, we created both one flower. And the both here is something like both working together with our needles. We created one, in other words, a single flower between us. 
both on one sampler. A sampler is like a piece of embroidery that you create as like a practice or demonstration when you're learning to embroider. So it'll have a lot of different designs on it. So what she's saying is they were working on the same piece of cloth, making one flower together. They didn't even want to work on separate samplers. That's how closely they worked together. And they also worked physically closely together, sitting on one cushion. And they were even closer than that both warbling of one song. Warbling is a very bird-like verb. It literally means singing, but warbling is prettier. And not only were they singing the same song, they were singing it in one key. Now that could be a musical key, because obviously you'd want to sing it in the same key, but it can also mean something like a chord or perfect unison, almost like you couldn't tell their voices apart when they sang together. As if our hands, our sides, voices, and minds had been incorporate. Sides here means frames. Usually it refers to the heart or the breath that's contained within your torso. So she says, it was as if our hands and our sides and our voices and even our minds had been incorporate. Not like they formed a company together, but they joined as one. Almost like they physically melded into a single body. So Shakespeare does a really cool kind of telescoping thing with these words here. First they were sewing a flower on the same sampler. Then they were sitting on one cushion, so they were physically close together. Then they were singing the same song in the same way and then they literally fuse together so it's almost as though he's bringing them slowly closer together over the course of this speech until they meld and become indistinguishable kind of sci-fi no so we grew together like to a double cherry seeming parted but yet an union in partition two lovely berries molded on one stem so that image extends even further they grew together like a double cherry maybe you've seen fruit that grew too close together so it melded with another fruit well that's the image here seeming parted, but yet an union in partition. It's a beautiful phrase. It means something like together even when they're separated. So if you pull apart a double cherry, you can still see where it was joined to the other one. Two lovely berries molded on one stem. Molded here probably means something like made or created on a single stem. This also goes back to that image of the kissing cherries that Demetrius just used to talk about Helena's lips. Now Helena and Hermia are the two cherries, although for some reason they've become berries now. So with two seeming bodies, but one heart, Two of the first, like coats and heraldry, do but to one and crowned with one crest. Two seeming bodies. In other words, it was apparent to the eye that they were two different bodies, but they only had one heart. And again, this goes back to Lysander's speech earlier. Two bosoms and one heart. Well, yeah, they look separate, but actually they share a single heart. And then she uses an image which is almost incomprehensible today. Very easy to cut, incidentally. She says they're two of the first, like coats in heraldry. Okay, heraldry, you may know, is this elaborate code under the feudal system that they used to use to distinguish members of a noble family. Like the whole thing about coats of arms? Yeah, that's heraldry. So according to the rules of heraldry, only one member of a noble family could use the coat of arms with no changes, usually the eldest son of the family, the one who was going to inherit all the land and the title. And that person was referred to as of the first house. So that's what two of the first, which is very unusual because usually it was only one person at a time got to use it. Like coats in heraldry, like coats of arms in heraldry, do but to one. Because that coat of arms, that first house, was usually due, in other words, given to only one person at a time, and crowned with one crest. The crest is the symbol you put at the top of a coat of arms. So even though they were two people, they had that one coat of arms with one crest that they shared, which is highly unusual, but that's how close they were. And there's a little bit of poetic showing off here, crowned and crest. So it's actually kind of a beautiful, emotional hearkening back to what they used to be. And because of the beauty of that language, we go into a little bit of a trance here. We forget all the screaming that's happened, and we just remember along with these two women what they used to be like. But then Helena makes a big turn. She wheels on Hermia and she says, And will you rent our ancient love asunder to join with men in scorning your poor friend? Will you rent? Not like rent a house. Here it means tear. 
Will you tear our ancient love, ancient just because it's long-standing, it's been going on for years, asunder. Asunder means into pieces. So they have this beautiful love, and remember, a joined love. And she says, Hermia is tearing that apart. To join with men in scorning your poor friend. Scorning means mocking or taunting. There's a real sense of sisterliness in that earlier part of the speech. And she says, no, actually, you're joining with men. You're joining with the enemy to make fun of me. She says, it is not friendly. Tis not maidenly. Friendly, not just as in nice, but friend-like. It's not the kind of thing a friend would do. And more to the point, it's not maidenly. It's not what an honorable young woman should do. And she goes even farther with the female solidarity thing. She says, our sex, as well as I, may chide you for it, though I alone do feel the injury. So it isn't just me chiding you, in other words, yelling at you, scolding you for this. It's our whole sex. All women should be angry at you, even though I alone, I'm the only person who feels the injury, who's getting that harm or insult. And Hermia is shocked. That's two shocks in a row. She says, I am amazed at your words. And she's so shocked that it's an incomplete line. There's two syllables missing. In performance, this could actually give her a chance to pause before she speaks. I mean, if you want, I suppose the two syllables you could add would be gwa, because this makes no sense to her at all. Amazed has some of our modern sense, but it can also just mean stunned. And she won't let this stand. She says, I scorn you not. Like, I'm not insulting you. I'm not taunting you. What are you talking about? But then, just like Helena did, Hermia jumps to her own conclusion. Not only don't I scorn you, she says, it seems that you scorn me. You're actually the one who's making fun of me. So notice Hermia picked up on Helena's scorning your poor friend. And she says, I scorn you not. It seems that you scorn me. And then Helena picks up on it again. She says, have you not set Lysander as in scorn to follow me and praise my eyes and face and made your other love, Demetrius, who even now did spurn me with his foot to call me goddess, nymph, divine and rare, precious, celestial? Haven't you set Lysander? In other words, haven't you instructed or directed Lysander? You were the one in control of this. Man, she's really making up this conspiracy theory, as in scorn, as if in mockery, to follow me around and praise my eyes and face, and made your other love, another person who loves you, Demetrius, who even but now, even just now, just a few minutes ago, he spurned me, which means to kick away. Although she did have a speech earlier where she said, you can kick me if you want. So it's this parenthetical, Demetrius, who even but now did spurn me with his foot. Just a few minutes ago, he was kicking me away. Now he's calling me goddess, nymph, divine, rare, precious, celestial. And this goes back to that list of words he spoke. Remember, nymph is that beautiful sort of mythological nature spirit. But it's all those words in which he compared her to a god of some kind. Precious, celestial. Celestial meaning of the heavens, like a star. So Detective Helena is really following the evidence here, though to a totally wrong conclusion. She says, wherefore speaks he this to her he hates? Wherefore, meaning why, for what reason, would he say all these words to someone he hates? And wherefore doth Lysander deny your love, so rich within his soul, and tender me, forsooth, affection, but by your setting on, by your consent? So wherefore, why would Lysander possibly deny your love, deny loving you? And then in parentheses, so rich within his soul. Rich is another one of those money words, but here it means something like great or prized by his soul. He used to love you that much. And why would he tender me? In other words, offer me, forsooth. Forsooth means truly or in truth, affection. So why would these two guys do these things? But if it weren't for the fact that you set them on. Setting on means urging or inciting. So you must have been the mastermind of this. You told them to talk this way to me by your consent. So at the very least, you let them do this. And she goes right back into that same mode she was in in her first appearance in the play. She says, What though I be not so in grace as you, so hung upon with love, so fortunate, but miserable most, to love unloved. What though means 
so what if, or what does it matter to you if I'm not as in grace as you? In grace means favored, especially by God. The gods here in this case are Lysander and Demetrius. So are you that jealous? Does it matter that much to you that I'm not as favored as you are? So hung upon with love. I love that phrase hung upon as though the men are literally hanging on her, begging her for her love. So fortunate as you are, but miserable most. You can hear how that's underlined by the alliteration, miserable most, the most miserable person in the world. To love unloved. This is such an economic phrase. It gets across a whole world of meaning in two or three words. To love while not being loved in return. Like, what kind of monster are you? Like, isn't it bad enough that no one loves me? And she says, this you should pity rather than despise. And that's a true antithesis. She says, you should pity me. You shouldn't hate me. And Hermia is still flabbergasted. She says, I understand not what you mean by this. But Helena still doesn't believe her. She says, I do. Like, yeah, keep it up. Persever. Counterfeit sad looks. Make mouths upon me when I turn my back. Wink at each other. Hold the sweet jest up. Persever means keep going with it. Sort of related to that word persevere. In this case, keep going with your trick on me. Counterfeit sad looks. Counterfeit means pretend or fake. Sad looks. Not sad like upset, but sad as in serious. So pretend to have these serious looks when I'm looking at you, but make mouths upon me when I turn my back. Make mouths means to make faces. So you look all serious, but then as soon as I turn my back, maybe you stick your tongue out at me. Wink each at other. And notice how in order to keep that regular iambic pentameter, it's not wink at each other. It's wink each at other. Hold the sweet jest up. Jest means joke, but here it can also be something like the act you're pulling. Hold the sweet jest up. Keep that smooth or pretty act up. And this is all very ironic because what she's saying is, I get what you're doing. You won't even admit to it. You're going to keep this up, keep making fun of me no matter what I do. She says, this sport well carried shall be chronicled. There's that word sport again. This entertainment, this amusement, well carried, in other words, well conducted or well managed, shall be chronicled. A chronicle is literally a book of history. So like this is going to be written down in the history books. That's how amazing of a joke this is. You guys are so great. Again, she refuses to believe people telling her that they love her. This is what love has done to her mind. All that fantasy and fancy they've been talking about. Well, for her, the fantasy is always about tormenting yourself. Everyone hates you. There's nothing you can do. And I think most people have felt this at one time or another, that incredibly bad self-image where you just think the world is out to get you all the time. Well, Helena has the world's worst case of that. And she really collapses. She says, if you have any pity, grace, or manners, you would not make me such an argument. So if you have any pity or manners, or what's this word grace? Well, here it's something like virtue or just a sense of basic duty as a human being. So if you had any of these feelings, you would not make me such an argument. Argument here is something like the subject of your joke or even a target. It's not our modern sense of the word. So she's had enough. She says, but fare you well, which is basically the equivalent of goodbye. And then this amazing thing she says at the end of her speech, she says, "'Tis partly my own fault." which death or absence soon shall remedy. Wow, it's partly my own fault that you're making fun of me. That's how pathetic I am. Which death or absence, so either her own death or just leaving, will remedy soon. Remedy means to fix or relieve. Those are the only two things that can end this situation. So she starts to leave, but Lysander stops her. Because remember, he is in love with her. He says, stay gentle, Helena. Hear my excuse. My love, my life, my soul, fair Helena. Excuse, not like his excuse for doing something bad, but his explanation, his reasons for loving her. And then he gives her names too, just as Demetrius gave her those goddess names. My love, my life, my soul. And Helena can't believe this is still going on. She says, oh, excellent. Like, oh, this is great. Yeah, keep going. And Hermia, who still has no idea what the hell is going on, turns to Lysander and says, 
sweet, do not scorn her so. The sweet here is Lysander. She's saying, don't make fun of her that way. Why would you swear your love to her? This is just mean. And Demetrius also turns to Lysander and says, if she cannot entreat, I can compel. So if she, if Hermia, can't entreat you, can't persuade or ask you to stop talking to Helena that way, I can compel, I can force you to stop that way, probably with violence. And Lysander picks up on those words entreat and compel and says, thou canst compel no more than she entreat. So neither of you can do anything to me. You can't ask nicely and you can't force me. He says, thy threats have no more strength than her weak prayers. And prayers here is not religious, but her asking. And he turns back to Helena. He says, Helen, I love thee. By my life I do. I swear by that which I will lose for thee to prove him false that says I love thee not. So first he swears by his life, and he says, I swear by that which I will lose for thee. I swear by the thing that I'm prepared to lose for you, which might be another reference to his life, to prove him false, basically to prove him wrong or to prove that he's lying. And who's the he? The person that says, I don't love you. So whoever that is, I'll prove that that person's a liar because I do love you. So after Lysander says, I love thee and ends with, I love thee not, Demetrius picks up on that language and says, I say, I love thee more than he can do. And those last four lines, those declarations of love are really twisty sounding. You get that parallelism of love thee and lose for thee and prove and love, which probably in Shakespeare's day would have sounded more similar, you know, because they're spelled the same way. And Lysander picks up his cue from Demetrius saying, I love thee. And he says, if thou say so, withdraw and prove it too. So if you're going to say you love her, withdraw. In other words, step outside with me here. Of course, they are already outside, but let's go somewhere else and prove it too, presumably by fighting. And Demetrius is all for that. He says, quick, come. Like, fine, let's go. It's very choppy sounding language. It's like, yeah, let's go. But Hermia isn't having any of this. Remember, she still has no idea what's going on. She jumps right onto Demetrius's short line and finishes it. She says, Lysander, where to tends all this? Where to means something like, to what end does all this tend? Tends means refers or has to do with. So what is all this talk about? And Lysander is about to let loose on her. He says, away, you Ethiop. And that line away seems to indicate that maybe she's grabbing onto him, maybe taking his hand even. He calls her an Ethiop. Nice little racial slur for everybody at home. It can refer more generally to an African or to refer to anyone with dark skin. So unfortunately, back in the Elizabethan day, dark skinned people were thought of as ugly. So that Ethiop is a real insult. He's calling her hideous. And then Demetrius starts teasing him. He says, no, no, sir, seem to break loose. Okay, there's a lot of disagreement between the texts of A Midsummer Night's Dream about what exactly the words in this section really are. You can look in your own edition and see if you like what they did better than this one, but I'll use this. So he's being really ironic here. He says, seem to break loose, like pretend you're breaking away from her. Take on as you would follow, but yet come not. Take on, in other words, act or behave as you would follow, like you would follow, but yet come not. But don't actually come, like you don't really have the balls to go through with it. And then he says, you are a tame man. Go. Tame here means like submissive or whipped. Because he's trying to prove how much he personally loves Helena, he has to downgrade how much Lysander loves her. So Lysander gets even angrier at Hermia. He has to prove himself now. He says, hang off, thou cat, thou burr. And hang off is kind of a creative way of saying, stop hanging on to me. Thou cat, thou burr. Well, any of you out there who own cats know that they will sometimes just hang on to your clothes as you're holding them. So that's what it is here, like a cat that got its claws into your pants and won't let go. Thou burr. Burr is one of those little spiky clingers that attaches to your shoes and socks when you're out in the forest for a little while. So he says that's what Hermia is because she won't let go of him. Vile thing, let loose or I will shake thee from me like a serpent. Vile thing, in other words, terrible or awful. And then he calls her a thing. Ooh, terrible insult. Let loose, in other words, let go of me. Or, or else, I will shake thee from me like a serpent. 
And it's almost hearkening back to that image of her waking up from a dream and trying to shake that dream snake off of her. Well, he says that's what he's going to do to her if she doesn't let go of him. And you see in his first line how choppy it is. Hang off, thou cat, thou burr, vile thing, let loose. It almost indicates some physical action there. There's probably a great physical bit to be done with Hermia hanging on to him. Lord knows it has been done in production before. Almost always at this point in the scene, people start to climb on each other and grab hold of each other. And this is usually a very physical scene in that way. And this is really the worst rejection she's seen. So before she was confused, and now she is flabbergasted. She says, why are you grown so rude? Not rude like chewing with your mouth open. Rude here means harsh or unkind. It's usually used to refer to the wild sea in a storm. So it's a much stronger sense than our modern sense of it. What change is this sweet love? No, there's that word change, like transformation. And Lysander takes her sweet love as his cue. He picks up on that and says, thy love, out, tawny tartar, out. And here's Lysander again with the racism. Tawny means brown skinned. And tartar, you may remember from when Puck talked about being faster than an arrow from the tartar's bow. A tartar is a Mongol, those Asian people who conquered Europe. So he has all number of racial insults for her. Is she of another race? No, not particularly. It does feel extra harsh because of that double T sound, tawny tartar. And he goes on with more insults, thankfully not racist. He says, out loathed medicine. So he's calling her a medicine now? One of the meanings of medicine, which we do not have now, is poison. And he goes on, he says, oh hated potion, hence... Potion also in the sense of poison, and hence just means get out of here. And to Hermia, this is impossible. Why would he suddenly talk differently? She says, do you not jest? Like, you must be joking around. This is crazy. She says that to him, but Helena jumps onto it. Remember, she is still obsessed with her explanation. She says, yes, sooth, and so do you. Sooth meaning truly or in truth. Like, oh yeah, he is, and you are too. You're the other one making fun of me. Everything's always got to be about Helena. Lysander, meanwhile, turns to Demetrius and says, Demetrius, I will keep my word with thee. And we still have that phrase, keep my word, but it was a little more specific at the time this was written. Your word is your promise. In other words, the talking part of your promise. And what was his promise? That they were going to fight over Helena. But Demetrius takes that word as his cue and says, I would I had your bond. I would means I wish. And a bond is another part of the promise, but it's the part where you're actually required to carry it out, like almost like a contract. So you can give your word, but a bond is like a legal promise. And he goes on to pun on that. He says, for I perceive a weak bond holds you. And what's that weak bond he's talking about here? Well, I think it's almost a performance reference to blocking in the play. So maybe the weak bond here is Hermia's arms, which she's using to keep him from going. So Demetrius is teasing him that if even a weak woman can keep him in her grasp, it must be a powerful bond. But he says, I'll not trust your word. And Lysander doesn't much like being made fun of for this. He says, what, should I hurt her? Strike her? Kill her dead? He's saying he can easily get out of her grasp if he wants to, but he doesn't want to hurt her. He says, although I hate her, I'll not harm her so. You can see the way that hate and harm are contrasted here. These two strong words that both start with the same letter. And again, because we're in the language of comedy, the language of wit, Hermia picks up on his verbs and uses them herself. He says, although I hate her, I'll not harm her so. And she says, what? Can you do me greater harm than hate? Like hate is the worst harm you can do to me. And she keeps riffing on that same word. Hate me? Wherefore? In other words, why? Or more specifically, for what reason do you hate me? Oh me, what news, my love? Not news like, was there a bus crash in Passaic, but what new things, what changes have happened? You might almost say transformations. She says, am not I Hermia? Are not you Lysander? And again, this dovetails just perfectly with that idea of love as a transformation. And not just love, but the way love changes as a transformation. To her, Hermia and Lysander are two things that are just automatically in love. So they would have to not be Hermia and not be Lysander to fall out of love. Though, of course, people fall out of love all the time. But it's that shocking to her that they must have transformed in some way for him not to love her anymore. She says, 
I am as fair now as I was erewhile. I'm as fair. In other words, I'm as beautiful now as I was erewhile, meaning just a little while ago, just when we went to sleep. And now all of a sudden we're awake and things have changed. I look exactly the same. Since night you loved me, yet since night you left me. Since night means this very night or just this last night. So you were in love with me and yet you left me. How do you square those two things? And then it hits her mind. She's horrified. She says, why then you left me? Oh, the gods forbid in earnest, shall I say? The gods forbid, as in may the gods forbid it to be true that you left me in earnest. In other words, for real or seriously. And that's so shocking that she can't even finish that verse line. So he has to finish it for her. He says, I, by my life, and never did desire to see thee more. By my life means I swear by my life. And I never did desire to see thee more. In other words, any more. Like, yeah, it's all true, lady. Therefore, be out of hope, of question, of doubt. And of question here means something like debating. So she should give up all hope. She should stop doubting. She should stop debating it. Be certain, nothing truer. Tis no jest that I do hate thee and love Helena. Remember back a few lines ago when she said that he jested? Well, now he's saying, tis no jest. This is no joke. And listen to how choppy this language is. Therefore be out of hope, of question, of doubt. Be certain, nothing truer. Tis no jest. It's pulsing. It's emphatic. He is laying down the law. And he just says it outright. I hate you. I love Helena. And once she hears that, maybe Hermia stops holding on to him. And she turns on Helena. She says, oh me. Which is sort of related to oh my. You juggler. You canker blossom, you thief of love. She picks up that same choppy language and starts turning it on Helena. So she calls her some pretty good insults. Now this use of juggler is not our modern circus sense of it. It's someone who tricks or deceives. And that word canker blossom, it refers to something that cankers a blossom. And specifically these things called canker worms, which are these little caterpillars or grubs that eat up a flower from within. And maybe in this case, it's the flower of love. Because the last thing she calls her is Thief of Love, which sounds like a great 50s soul song. It's a shame no one ever wrote it. And she elaborates on that Thief of Love line. What, have you come by night and stolen my love's heart from him? Like, yes, that is what a Thief of Love does. As if she broke into Lysander's house and stole his heart in the middle of the night. And Helena, remember, still thinks that Hermia is messing with her. And she says, fine, Ephaith. Fine as in nice, real nice. That's awesome. Yeah, just keep going on. If faith is short for, I swear by my good faith. It's kind of a light oath. Have you no modesty, no maiden shame, no touch of bashfulness? Here's that choppy language, that list making again. She's echoing her. She says, don't you have any modesty? Modesty as in like moderation or appropriate behavior. No maiden shame. There's that word maiden again, which literally means virgin. But here it refers to like the proper behavior of a young woman. None of the shame that's appropriate for a virgin. No touch of bashfulness. Not bashfulness like Bambi or something, but it's the ability to be embarrassed. Sometimes you'll hear the modern word abashed. It's that same idea. You can't even be embarrassed by what you're doing right now? What, will you tear impatient answers from my gentle tongue? It's an incredibly active verb, tearing them from her tongue. Basically eliciting them, but against her will. And the contrast here is of those adjectives impatient and gentle. She thinks that Hermia is trying to get her to lose her cool. So she says, I have a gentle tongue. I'm well behaved. But you're trying to get me to talk impatiently. And that is just it for Helena. She won't stand for that. She says, fie. Fie, you counterfeit. You puppet, you. Fie is a great word because it sounds like what it is. It's just an expression of disgust or anger. Like, ugh. And she calls her a counterfeit. Sort of like we'd speak about a counterfeit bill. The sense is of a pretender or some kind of like false imitator. Someone who's pretending to be what they're not. And finally she pulls out the big guns. She calls her a puppet. Which here isn't like Ernie and Bird or something. It means a doll. You'll sometimes hear that modern word poppet. P-O-P-P-E-T. is related to that. 
So she's calling her a little doll. And why? Well, Hermia is going to explain. She says, puppet? Why so? Like, why would you call me that? And then she gets why she's calling her a puppet. She says, I, that way goes the game. We're going to play like that, are we? Now I perceive that she hath made compare between our statures. Oh. Made compare means like make a comparison between our statures, which means heights. Because what we'll learn is that Hermia is short and Helena is tall. Another important thing if you're casting them. I have seen some productions that really pushed it. It was like Helena was 5'7 and Hermia was 5'6. And I don't know if that quite cuts it. So they just put Helena in like tall shoes or something? And the thing about being a best friend with someone is that you know exactly what drives them nuts. You know all their insecurities. So if you ever do make an enemy of them, you have all the perfect insults. And that's what happens here. Hermia says, she hath urged her height. And with her personage, her tall personage, her height forsooth, she hath prevailed with him. Urged here, not in our modern sense, it means brought it forward or sort of stated it pointedly. She's mentioned her height, which she loves to talk about. Oh, I'm so tall and pretty. And then Hermia has a theory about how this impossible thing could happen. She says, with her personage, which here means something like personal appearance, her tall personage, her height forsooth, forsooth meaning truly or in truth, she hath prevailed with him. Prevailed here means succeeded. And what we're supposed to assume is that it means succeeded in seducing him. Like this is the way she got him from me. She used her height. And she follows that up. And are you grown so high in his esteem because I am so dwarfish and so low? Esteem is like regard or opinion. But she has a pun with that word high. Like we'd use the phrase high regard. It's that same idea. Because I am so dwarfish and so low. She's insulting herself. People are good at that in this play. You're implying I'm some kind of dwarf? She goes the full Joe Pesci on her. And she says, how low am I, thou painted maypole? That's a pretty good insult though, right? So remember that May Day and Midsummer stuff we talked about before? Well, the maypole is right at the center of that, literally. It's a pole you would dance around on May Day as part of these rituals. Sometimes they would even use them on Midsummer, Because remember, Shakespeare kind of conflates the two a little bit. And she calls her a painted maypole. Because maypoles were often painted these bright colors to make them stand out. There's also a hint here. When you say painted, it often refers to someone who wears too much makeup. And in particular, to a prostitute. So she gets a little jab in at her. Like, you calling me short? Well, I'm going to call you a tall whorepole. And she starts poking her. Maybe in production, she pokes her literally. She says, speak. How low am I? Yeah, tell me how low I am. You see that refrain of how low am I? She keeps bringing it up again and again. She says, I am not yet so low, but that my nails can reach unto thine eyes. Yeah, I'm not so short that my nails can't reach your eyes to scratch them out. And maybe she straight up lunges at her at this point, like earrings off. And remember, Helena is the victim in her mind. So she says, I pray you, though you mock me, gentlemen, let her not hurt me. So she doesn't fight Hermia. She appeals right to the boys. Because remember, now they're on her team. I pray you, in other words, I ask you or I beg you, though you mock me, even though you're making fun of me with this love stuff, let her not hurt me. Don't let her hurt me. Protect me. I'm just a poor little girl. She says, I was never cursed. I have no gift at all in shrewishness. Now this word cursed isn't in our modern sense of like being under a curse. It means bad-tempered or always fighting with other people. And it's usually associated with this other word, shrewish or shrewd. She says, I have no gift at all in shrewishness, which means like aggressiveness or attacking. And it's especially used about women. It comes from that tiny little animal, which is known for being really vicious and angry. You may have heard this play, The Taming of the Shrew. She says, I am a right maid for my cowardice. Right here doesn't mean correct. It means typical or normal. Like I'm just a typical young girl. There's that word maid again. For my cowardice. For here means in terms of. Like, you know how we innocent girls are. We're cowards. So what she's implying is, unlike Hermia, she's just a nice lady. She says, let her not strike me. 
which is an echo of that one before, let her not hurt me. Now it's let her not strike me. And she keeps the appeal up. She says, you perhaps may think because she is something lower than myself that I can match her. I think she's starting to enjoy this a little bit. I think she's starting to enjoy their attention. I think she's starting to enjoy winning. So she says, innocent as you please. Maybe you think because she's something lower, something meaning somewhat or slightly lower, in other words, shorter than I am, that I can match her. Like, I'm not as strong or as angry as she is. Don't be fooled by her height. And that makes Hermia lose it even more. She says, lower? Hark again! Hark means listen, or did you hear that? Like, she's doing it again. You're letting her get away with this? And Helena keeps up this innocent act. She says, good Hermia, do not be so bitter with me. I evermore did love you, Hermia. Did ever keep your counsels, never wronged you. Save that, in love unto Demetrius, I told him of your stealth unto this wood. I evermore did love you. Evermore means always or constantly. Like, I always loved you. Did ever keep your counsels. Counsels are secrets or private matters. Never wronged you. But as soon as she says, I always kept your counsels and never wronged you, it occurs to her, actually, there was that one time that she didn't, which is that in love unto Demetrius, in other words, out of her love for Demetrius, she told him of your stealth unto this woods. Stealth here means her stealing away. You can see the word steal in the middle of stealth. We just pronounce it a little differently. So I was always a great friend to you, except uh, earlier today when I totally screwed you over. And this is real news to Hermia and probably makes her even more furious. And she keeps explaining. She says, he followed you for love. I followed him. So you can see the trail there. But he hath chid me hence and threatened me to strike me, spurn me, nay, to kill me too. Chid basically means to yell at or insult. In this case, it means something like to drive away with harsh words. So he's driven me away hence, in other words, from here, and threatened me to strike me, spurn me. Remember, spurn means kick, nay, to kill me too. And yeah, he kind of threatened those things, but she's using her own phrasing. And I mean, she's literally quoting herself. Remember when she promised she would be his dog? Well, she uses those same words, spurn me, strike me. So she's self-dramatizing again. Again, we are all the heroes and the victims in our stories. She is no exception. She's just a very extreme version of that. And she finishes this mini story of hers by saying, And now, so you will let me quiet go? To Athens will I bear my folly back and follow you no further. So you will let me quiet go. In other words, so long as you will let me go from here quietly, meaning peacefully, without violence. She says she'll bear her folly back to Athens. Bear means literally to carry. So she says she's going to carry her foolishness back home. This is also very emphatic language, and you can hear from those repeated F sounds. Folly, follow, further. She says, let me go. Just let me go home now. You see how simple and how fond I am? Fond, not in our modern sense, but meaning foolish or stupid. Just let me go home. But again, there's a little bit of this, oh, I'm just a simple girl. And Hermia calls her out on it. She says, why get you gone? Remember, Helena just said to her, let me go. And Hermia says, get you gone. Who is that hinders you? Literally, who's keeping you from going? No one's even touching you. If you want to go, just go. And Helena clearly doesn't want to go. She says, a foolish heart that I leave here behind. That's what's hindering her. That's what's keeping her from going, which is that she's left her heart here. And Hermia says, what, with Lysander? And Helena says, with Demetrius. She doesn't love Lysander. She could care less. He has my heart, not Lysander. And since Helena had called on the boys to protect her, Lysander pipes up and says, be not afraid. She shall not harm thee, Helena. Like, congratulations on protecting this woman from a tiny little angry lady? Demetrius doesn't talk to Helena. He talks right at Lysander. He says, no, sir, she shall not, though you take her part. Yeah, she's not going to hurt her, even though you're taking her side. So he's saying that maybe Lysander could find a way to actually get her hurt if he was on her team. 
And Helena appeals to the boys again. She says, oh, when she is angry, she is keen and shrewd. There's that word shrewd or shrewish again. And keen here means cutting, literally like a sharp blade. And shrewd, remember, means angry or aggressive or bad-tempered. She says, she was a vixen when she went to school, and though she be but little, she is fierce. We sometimes use vixen in the same way. It literally means a female fox, but in this time it refers to someone who's belligerent or quarrelsome, like an angry mother fox, maybe. And she's pulling on those childhood insecurities again. She says, when we went to school, she was a vixen. And though she be but little, but here means only. So even though she's only a little woman, she is fierce. And because Helena knows exactly what Hermia's insecurities are, it is just driving her crazy. She says, little again, nothing but low and little. Like, I can't believe you're using these words again. And now she appeals to the boys herself. She says, why will you suffer her to flout me thus? We use suffer in a different way. Here it means like allow or permit her to flout me thus. Flout means to insult or abuse. But it's a great sounding word too. She says, let me come to her. Like, just let me fight her already. But they're not having it. Lysander says, get you gone, you dwarf. You minimus of hindering knotgrass maid. You bead, you acorn. So now they're starting to pick up on this insult too. It's gang up on Hermia time. And they start calling her names. They call her a dwarf. Remember she used the word dwarfish? And then this incredibly elaborate insult. He calls her a minimus, which is just a Latin word meaning a tiny little thing, made of hindering knotgrass. Knotgrass is this weed that sort of creeps along the ground. And it's called knotgrass because it tends to kind of tangle into knots. And why is it hindering? Because your feet get tangled in it as you walk. So maybe she's so low that she's something that could trip people up as they go. You bead, which has a specific meaning for us, but can really refer to any tiny little object. You acorn. We know exactly how big that is. Remember we had that image earlier of the fairies being so small that they could hide in acorn cups? And Demetrius cuts him off mid-verse line. He says, you are too officious in her behalf that scorns your services. Officious is like over-eager or overzealous or even meddling. Why? Because she scorns his services. Scorns means that she refuses or disdains to use his services. And you can hear the alliteration of scorns and services to really make it hit home. He says, let her alone. In other words, leave her alone. Speak not of Helena. Take not her part. As in, don't take her side. And you can hear these half-line edicts. Let her alone. Speak not of Helena. Take not her part. Short and to the point. And why shouldn't he take her part? He explains, for if thou dost intend never so little show of love to her thou shalt abide it. So if you intend never so little show, like even the smallest show of love to her, thou shalt abide it. You're going to pay for it. And now Lysander cuts him off midline. He says, now she holds me not. Like I got rid of that lady who was holding on to me. Make me pay. He says, now follow if thou darest to try whose right of thine or mine is most in Helena. So if you dare, follow me and we'll try whose right. Try here means to test or specifically decide by combat of thine or mine. So between your right to love her and my right to love her, let's test who has the most right to her, basically. And Demetrius picks right up on his word choice of follow. He says, I'm not going to follow you. Follow? Nay, I'll go with thee, cheek by jowl. So I'm not going to follow you in anything. We're going to go together to fight. And then there's this very specific image of that. He says, cheek by jowl. Jowl means jaw or even just cheek. So we'll be perfectly lined up. So neither of us is leading or following. And they run off to fight. And they leave the girls all alone. And Helena, still being something of a coward and still playing the innocent, doesn't like the odds here. Hermia turns on her and says, you mistress, all this coil is long of you. 
coil, like the term mortal coil in Hamlet, not a spring. It means like a disturbance or an uproar. All this craziness is long of you, literally belongs to you. So it's your fault. It's because of you. You're the one who caused all this nonsense. And Helena starts to leave. She's feeling a little threatened now. But Hermia says, nay, go not back. And Helena jumps right on that line. She says, I will not trust you, I, nor longer stay in your cursed company. I'm not going to stay any longer in your cursed company. We just heard that word, which means argumentative or fighting or aggressive. And you get those strong, hard K sounds. In this case, they're C's of cursed company. And the way she gets out of the scene is with a rhyming couplet. She says, your hands than mine are quicker for a fray. The word order is all over the place. Basically, your hands are quicker for a fray than mine are. A fray is a fight. So you may have quicker fighting hands than I do, but my legs are longer, though, to run away. Well, that's an advantage of being tall, having longer legs. And she busts it out of there. She's like, I'm not fighting. She knows Hermia's tough. And Hermia's just sort of left on stage. She says, I am amazed and know not what to say. Amazed is sort of like bewildered or even frozen solid, like someone who's stuck in a maze. Like that is not what she expected. And there's that cool little hangover effect that you get with the third rhyme in a row, fray away, and then she says, say, because you're only expecting two rhymes and you get a third. But she evidently gets over her amazement and she runs off too. And the effect of this is that you have a totally unrhymed scene that ends with a bunch of rhymes. It's a way of tying up this very long sequence, like by far the longest sequence in the play, using rhyme, and it gives you this feeling of cumulative insanity. And this scene, by the way, is usually very physical. There's often like people being thrown around and picked up. So in production, it's even crazier than it is just listening to the words. This is often a scene that gets something like exit applause. If it's especially well done, it's almost like a string quartet, this scene. There's incredible group virtuosity involved to bring it off. So after all this happens, after this long sequence, remember that Oberon and Puck are still on the stage? Yeah, they're just hanging out invisible in the back. And they come forward having witnessed all this insanity. And Oberon turns to Puck and says, This is thy negligence. You screwed this up. Still thou mistakest, or else commits thy knaveries willfully. So still thou mistakest means you're always making a mistake. And specifically, mistaking means to take the wrong person. Or else, you commit your knaveries willfully. Knaveries are these kind of like rascally tricks. And willfully means intentionally, on purpose. So you're always getting things wrong. Or what's maybe even worse is you're willfully screwing things up. Remember, Puck is really into mischief. This is just the kind of thing he would do. And when given those two options, Puck picks up on that mistakes one. He says, believe me, King of Shadows, I mistook. That's a great title, King of Shadows. A, it implies that he kind of hangs out in the shadows, but shadows here specifically are spirits or supernatural beings. You'll sometimes hear the word shades. He says, believe me, I mistook. I didn't do it willfully. It was a mistake. He's using mistake as the cue. And then he justifies it. He says, did not you tell me I should know the man by the Athenian garments he had on? He's got a point. He says, and so far blameless proves my enterprise that I have anointed an Athenian's eyes. And so far blameless, in other words, my enterprise proves so blameless. Not in our modern sense of so far, but like to such an extent. My enterprise, my business or my undertaking is blameless, is not my fault because I have anointed an Athenian's eyes. Anointed here is short for anointed, which means to put the liquid on. Like I put it on an Athenian, you wanted an Athenian. And he gets so worked up here that rhyme comes back. It's been gone for a few lines. And then he echoes that so far line again. He says, and so far am I glad it so did sort. As this there jangling, I esteem a sport. So A, it's not my fault, but B, I'm glad it's sorted this way. Sort means to happen. And you get another so. So there's a real echoing happening throughout this passage. I'm actually glad it turned out this way. Why? Because this there jangling? Jangling means fighting or arguing, but literally it means noise making. So all this crazy noisy fighting of theirs, I esteem a sport. I regard this as entertainment. So he's saying, yeah, it's not my fault, but I did enjoy it. 
and Oberon doesn't want to spend the time debating whose fault this is, so he just fixes it. He says, Thou seest these lovers seek a place to fight? So they're looking for somewhere to have a fight. The boys are going off to actually duel over Helena, and the girls are chasing each other around. So he says, Hi, therefore, Robin, overcast the night. Hi, not as in, Hi, how you doing? High means to hurry. So because they're looking for a place to fight, Puck has to hurry before they start fighting. He says, overcast the night, meaning cover it with clouds or fog. The starry welkin cover thou anon with drooping fog as black as Acheron, and lead these testy rivals so astray as one come not within another's way. The starry welkin? Welkin is a really archaic way to say sky. So cover the starry sky anon, meaning very soon, with drooping fog. Why is the fog drooping? Because it's literally falling down as black as Acheron. Acheron is one of the five rivers of the Greek underworld, but it may just refer to the underworld or hell itself. He wants the fog to be as dark as that. You also get some more cool internal rhyme here, black and Acheron. So once it's all foggy and no one can see where they're going, he says, and lead these testy rivals, testy meaning irritable or short-tempered, lead them so astray as one come not within another's way. This is good news for Puck, of course, because this is what he does. Remember the first time we saw him? He and the fairy were talking about how he liked to mislead night wanderers? Well, he gets to do it again, this time on orders. And Oberon's micromanaging a little bit. He says, like to Lysander, sometime frame thy tongue. Then stir Demetrius up with bitter wrong. So first, like to Lysander, in other words, like Lysander, sometime, as in sometimes, frame thy tongue. Frame means to form or shape. Sort of like if he got his tongue the right shape, he could sound exactly like Lysander. You also get that cool sound echo of like and Lysander. Then stir Demetrius up with bitter wrong. Wrong means an insult or a slight. So basically talk in Lysander's voice and use it to insult Demetrius. Stir him up. And by the same token, he says, And sometime rail thou like Demetrius. Rail means to like rant or rave. So sometimes talk like Demetrius does. And rail at Lysander. And from each other look thou lead them thus, Till o'er their brows death counterfeiting sleep With leaden legs and batty wings doth creep. So look thou lead them, make sure you lead them thus, in this way, till o'er their brows, brows are foreheads literally, so over their foreheads, death counterfeiting sleep. It's a beautiful phrase, it really gets to it. Counterfeiting means imitating or pretending to be. So sleep is an imitator of death. We just happen to wake up from it. With leaden legs and batty wings doth creep. Again, another beautiful image. Leaden legs, meaning heavy, but specifically drowsy or slow. And batty wings, having wings like a bat. So it's a very specific image of what sleep is. It's death counterfeiting. It has heavy lead legs, and it has the wings of a bat. You could almost draw a creature based on this image. You also get some cool sounds in here. Look thou lead them. Leaden legs. All those L's. It sort of stretches it out a little bit. You start to hear the sleep and the dream in the language. And remember, one of the things about this magic love potion is that it doesn't let you fall asleep. So Puck actually has to get them to fall asleep magically before they can get the antidote. And that's exactly what Oberon's going to order him. He says, Then crush this herb into Lysander's eye, whose liquor hath this virtuous property, to take from thence all error with his might, and make his eyeballs roll with wanted sight. So he takes out another flower, another plant, which is the antidote, whose liquor, he says, liquor meaning juice, it hath this virtuous property. Not virtuous like morally virtuous, it means powerful or strong. And what property is it? To take from thence, to take from his eye, all error with his might. His might means the power of the juice of this other flower. And what does it do? It makes his eyeballs roll with wanted sight. It's a kind of bizarre image, but it just means look, because when you look around, your eyeballs roll in your head. Wounded means usual or normal sight. So this is another one of those references to eyes and seeing. It means that he's going to look the way he used to. He's going to see differently now. And Oberon goes on. He says, When they next wake, 
all this derision shall seem a dream and fruitless vision. So when they wake up, all this derision, all this yelling at each other, shall seem a dream and fruitless vision. Well, dream obviously is in the title of a play. It's hugely important because not only will their eyes work in the way they used to, but they'll think of everything they experienced under this spell as something like a dream and a fruitless vision. Fruitless meaning barren or useless. So they'll remember it, but they'll remember it like a dream or a vision. And back to Athens shall the lovers wend with league whose date till death shall never end. So the lovers are going to wend their way back to Athens, which literally means depart or go, like the word went. Notice, by the way, that Shakespeare engineers the word order so that the verb goes last. With league, a league is like a bond or an alliance, in this case between people who are in love and getting married, whose date till death. Date here means duration, so the duration of their alliance will never end till death. So not only will all this stuff seem like a dream, but their love is going to last forever. Notice, by the way, he's only using it on Lysander. In order to get all this to work, Demetrius has to stay in love with Helena. We'll talk more about this later. It's weird. And Oberon says he has plans of his own. He says, Whilst I in this affair do thee employ, I'll to my queen and beg her Indian boy. So while I employ you in this affair, in other words, this business, I'll to my queen, I'll go to my queen and beg her Indian boy. I'll ask for this Indian boy I've wanted. And then I will her charmed eye release from monster's view, and all things shall be peace. So charmed means put under a spell. He says he's not going to release her, he's going to release her eye. There's that word again. And what is he going to release it from? From monster's view. Not the view of the monster, but her seeing the monster. And the end of this is, and all things shall be peace. It's a beautiful line. Notice they're all monosyllables, single syllable words. They're all stressed. It just slows everything down, and it seems to resolve the speech in the same way that the plot's about to be resolved. And Puck responds, My fairy lord, this must be done with haste, for night's swift dragons cut the clouds full fast, and yonder shines Aurora's harbinger, at whose approach ghosts wandering here and there troop home to churchyards. So you can hear the speed in this run-on sentence. He says this must be done with haste, it has to be done fast. For night's swift dragons cut the clouds full fast. It's a beautiful image. The swift dragons of night. Supposedly the goddess of night pulled the night across the sky with a chariot led by dragons. It's a cool image. So the dragons of night, he says, they're cutting the clouds full fast. Full means very fast, but it's very poetical language. You get two alliterations in a row. Cut clouds full fast. And yonder shines Aurora's harbinger. Who is Aurora? Aurora is either the dawn or she's the goddess of the dawn. And he says he sees Aurora's harbinger. A harbinger is a herald or it's someone who goes before you, maybe to send a message. It could be a reference to the morning star, in other words, Venus, that appears just before sunrise. So I see the morning star over there. We better get going. At whose approach? Ghosts wandering here and there troop home to churchyards. So at the approach of that harbinger, or maybe of the dawn itself, ghosts wandering here and there. So all the dead people's ghosts that have been wandering around the land at night troop home to churchyards. Troop is a military word. It means to march in their troops. So they're out on patrol, and now they're going home to their churchyards. In other words, to the cemeteries. He says... Damned spirits all that in crossways and floods have burial, already to their wormy beds are gone. So damned spirits all. Damned here means condemned to hell. So all the spirits, all the ghosts that are in hell, that in crossways and floods have burial. Well, what does that refer to? Crossroads are where you buried suicides. Because remember, suicide was a mortal sin. It was like a murder that you couldn't repent from because you were the victim. So suicides weren't allowed to be buried in churchyards. They had to be buried out of Christian burial. And one place you did it is you buried them at crossroads. And then you would like drive a stake through their heart to mark their grave. It's intense, right? And floods, floods means rivers or oceans. These are people who drowned and so couldn't be properly buried. So basically any of the spirits that aren't in churchyards, they're already gone to their wormy beds. 
Very icky phrase, right? Their beds are full of worms. And why are they already gone? He says, For fear lest day should look their shames upon, they willfully themselves exile from light, and must for I consort with black-browed night. So they're afraid that the day is going to be able to look upon their shames, which is the suicide or any other reason they couldn't be buried in a churchyard. So because of their fear and shame, they willfully themselves exile. They exile themselves from light willfully, which means intentionally. And light is the literal light, but it's also God's heavenly light. They don't want their sins looked on. And must for I, which means forever, consort with black-browed night. Consort means to go along with or attend, almost like you're taking someone on a date. And their date is black-browed night. Brow is a forehead, or it can also refer to a face. But night has a black face. And again, you can see Shakespeare recycling his own phrases here. Black-browed night is also in Romeo and Juliet. So we don't quite know which one came first, but they were probably written around the same time because he was using his greatest hits. So that was an awfully long message to say we have to hurry up. And Oberon says, but we are spirits of another sort. So Puck says we have to hurry up, but Oberon says, actually, we're of another sort, which means kind or even class or level. Because the ghosts have to go back to bed as soon as the sun comes up, the fairies have a little longer. You also get a little bit of magic from that alliteration of spirits and sort. He says, I with the morning's love have oft made sport, and like a forester the groves may tread, even till the eastern gate, all fiery red, opening on Neptune with fair blessed beams, turns into yellow gold his salt green streams. This is such conscious poetry. You almost get a sense that after all the insanity and the speed of the previous scene with the lovers, the job of this scene is to slow things down a little bit. So how is he different from the ghosts? Oberon says, I with the morning's love have oft made sport. Oft short for often. And made sport means to dally. There's a real sexual connotation here too. I've messed around with the morning's love. The morning may be as in the goddess of dawn, Aurora. Oberon's sort of implying that he may have fooled around with her a little bit. By the way, in Ovid's Metamorphoses again, Aurora, the goddess of dawn, falls in love with a hunter. So it's not outside the realm of possibility. And he says, like a forester, a forester is a forest keeper. It's someone who usually works for the royal person who owns the forest. He says, like a forester, he may tread the groves. In other words, walk in the groves, even till the eastern gate. The eastern gate isn't the literal gate. It's the place in the east where the sun rises. That's why it's fiery red, opening on Neptune. Neptune refers to the sea or the god of the sea. So maybe the sea is in the east here with fair blessed beams. Fair meaning beautiful. And you get the alliteration of blessed and beams. So the eastern gate, that rising sun, turns into yellow gold his salt green streams. The his here is Neptune. It doesn't quite make sense, that adjective salt green, but it's basically the color of the salty sea. And streams isn't literal streams, it means currents. So it can be currents within the sea or of a river or stream. And so the dawn takes the green streams of Neptune and turns them into yellow gold with his blessed beams. So Oberon had a little moment to protest that actually he could stick around at least until the sunrise. But he got caught up. He says, but notwithstanding, haste. So nevertheless, regardless, haste, hurry yourself up. Make no delay. We may affect this business yet ere day. Effect means to carry out or put into effect. So we can take care of all of this stuff yet, still, ere day, before daybreak. And he pieces out to go take care of Titania. And Puck starts to do his job. And he starts with a funny little poem. He says, up and down, up and down, I will lead them up and down. Kind of nursery rhyme like, right? Could even be a song in theory. I am feared in field and town. It's like he's psyching himself up. Goblin, lead them up and down. I like that he calls himself a goblin. Again, it's much closer to that original idea of Puck or Robin Goodfellow, which is that he's a hobgoblin, not just a fairy, that he can shift his shape and voice. There's also a little bit of mockery here that Oberon is just telling him what to do. Like, fine, I'll lead him up and down, whatever. 
But I like this little weird moment for him. And then he sees one. He says, here comes one. So Lysander comes in looking for Demetrius. He says, where art thou, proud Demetrius? Speak thou now. And the proud seems to imply that he's too proud. He likes himself too much. And Puck answers him in Demetrius's voice. Why all this voice stuff? Well, because the fog has fallen at this point. Maybe Puck's little poem is actually what summons that fog. So Puck takes on Demetrius's voice. He says, here, villain, drawn and ready. Drawn means with his sword drawn. Like I'm ready to fight. Where art thou? And Lysander hears him. He answers back. He says, I will be with thee straight. Straight means at once, like straight away. I'll be right with you. And in order to lead him astray, Puck says, follow me then to plainer ground. Plainer as in smoother or flatter or more open, a place they can fight. So he calls him away. And maybe Demetrius has heard Lysander yelling, and in he comes. And Demetrius says, Lysander, speak again. Thou runaway, thou coward, art thou fled? Yeah, did you flee the scene? You didn't want to fight me? He says, speak. In some bush? Where dost thou hide thy head? Yeah, are you hiding in some bush somewhere? And he uses those double H's to taunt him even further. Hide thy head. And Puck takes that cue of thou coward, and he repeats it. He says, thou coward. Art thou bragging to the stars, telling the bushes that thou lookst for wars, and wilt not come? Puck takes on Lysander's voice, and he answers right back to Demetrius. He says, you're acting like a tough guy, but actually you don't want to fight. Are you bragging to the stars? You know, just talking to the air, telling the bushes that thou lookst for wars. Looks can mean our modern sense of seeks out. It can also mean you expect or you hope for wars, but you won't actually come to fight them. And again, he's still playing Lysander, and he says, Come, recreant, come, thou child. A recreant is another word for coward. It's actually from the old French word for surrender, or someone who yields in battle. So it's not just a generic insult. It's specific to what he's saying. And then he calls him a child. He says, I'll whip thee with a rod. This is what you use to punish children, as in spare the rod and spoil the child. I'll beat you with the same stick you use on bad kids. Why? Because he says, he is defiled that draws a sword on thee. Defiled means like polluted or dirty, especially in reputation. Because your reputation would be hurt if you attacked a little child. He says, it's more appropriate to hit you with a stick than with a sword. That would be bad for my honor. And Demetrius hears Lysander's voice and he says, yea, art thou there? And Puck keeps using Lysander's voice and he uses it to draw Demetrius away. He says, follow my voice. We'll try no manhood here. Try means test through combat. So we won't test our manhood with fighting here. This isn't the place for it. And off they go. And then the real Lysander comes back. He says, he goes before me and still dares me on. So he's walking before me in front of me and still constantly dares me on, challenges me or defies me to follow him. But then he says, when I come where he calls, then he is gone. He's very confused by this version of Demetrius. He says, the villain is much lighter healed than I. The villain, not like the villain of the story, but like a rascal or a rogue. He's much lighter healed than I. Notice he doesn't use the term faster. He says lighter healed. I followed fast, but faster he did fly. That fallen am I in dark, uneven way, and here will rest me. That is so many Fs, you guys. Followed fast, faster fly, fallen. Come to think of it, that's five Fs. So I thought I was fast, but he did fly. In other words, he fled. He ran away even faster. That fallen am I, so that I'm fallen in dark, uneven way. Way here means a path or a trail. He's implying that he's fallen down because he was running so fast. And as luck would have it, he decides, here will rest me. I'm going to sleep here. And as he's falling asleep, he says, Come, thou gentle day, for if but once thou show me thy gray light, I'll find Demetrius and revenge this spite. He's calling on the day to arrive because if but once, if just for a second, you show me your gray light, which is that first light of day when the sun's about to rise, which implies that they're in total darkness at this time. But he says, as soon as I get even a little light, I'll find Demetrius and revenge this spite. Spite means like an annoyance or an irritation. Actually, I'd love to see a production try to do this scene in total darkness and still make it clear. And with that, he goes to sleep. 
And then Puck leads Demetrius in by using Lysander's voice. He says, Ha ha ha, coward, why comest thou not? Like, why haven't you arrived yet to fight me? And Demetrius is running, following him. And he says, Abide me if thou darest, for well I wot thou runs before me, shifting every place, and darest not stand nor look me in the face. Abide me can mean either face me or just wait for me, if thou darest, if you dare to wait for me. For well I wot, in other words, I know very well that you run before me, shifting your place all the time, and darest not stand. In other words, you don't dare to stop or look me in the face. Like, it's not my fault I can't fight you. You won't stop running. Where art thou now? And here's Puck say in Lysander's voice, Come hither. I am here. Just come over here. And he tries again, but there's no Lysander there. And finally, Demetrius is so frustrated that he gives up. He says, Nay, then, thou mockst me. You're just making fun of me. He says, Thou shalt buy this deer, if ever I thy face by daylight see. Remember that word, abide? It's that same sense of, like, you'll pay for this deer, dearly, expensively, maybe with your life even, if ever I can actually see your face by daylight. Now go thy way. In other words, get out of here. Faintness constraineth me to measure out my length on this cold bed. Faintness meaning exhaustion constraineth me. It forces me or compels me to measure out my length. Measure as in, like, stretch out my length. Lie down on this cold bed. Presumably the ground. But he's got one last tough guy thing to say to him. He says, by day's approach, look to be visited. And then he immediately falls asleep. Look to means you can expect to be. So as soon as the day gets here, I swear I will beat the crap out of you. So now you have the two guys asleep on the ground. The project's working great, right? You can see the kind of schematic here. One by one, these lovers are being put in the same place and made to fall asleep. Conveniently enough, here's Helena. She comes in and says, Oh, weary night. Oh, long and tedious night. Abate thy hours. So she's been running from Hermia, trying to save herself. And so she starts talking to the night. She says, a weary night. Not that the night itself is tired, but the night is tiring. It's wearying because it's so long and drawn out. It's so long and tedious, she says. Abate thy hours. Abate means to shorten or reduce. End already. And now she stops talking to the night. She says, shine comforts from the east, that I may back to Athens by daylight from these that my poor company detest. She wants comforts to shine from the east. In other words, where the sunrise comes from. So she'll be comforted by light. So that, she says, I may back to Athens. In other words, I may go back to Athens by daylight from these, away from these people that my poor company detest, that hate being around me. Oh, Helena, ever the masochist. And she ends by saying, and sleep that sometimes shuts up sorrow's eye, steal me a while from mine own company. So she's talked to the night, she's talked to the dawn, and now she's talking to sleep. Sleep, she's saying, sometimes shuts up sorrow's eye. Shuts up as in closes the eye of sorrow or the eye of a sad person. She's asking it to steal me a while. In other words, make it take me away from my own company for a little while. Remember she said these people detest my poor company? Now she wants away from her company too. And that's what sleep can give her. And notice another mention of the eye again. In this case, it's sorrow's eye. So now she goes to sleep too. She's under the spell. So that's three. And Puck looks around and says, Yet but three? Come one more. Like, is that still only three people? I hope one more shows up. And notice we're back to that fairy meter, almost like the spell has started. He says... Two of both kinds makes up four. Like that's two boys, one girl. I still need one girl. And as if on cue, it's Hermia. He says, here she comes, cursed and sad. Cursed again, meaning bad-tempered or angry. And sad didn't just used to mean upset. Here it usually means serious or sullen. She is in a bad mood. And he has a moment of reflection. He says, Cupid is a knavish lad, thus to make poor females mad. Knavish lad means like a rascally or mischievous boy. To make poor females, poor women, mad, like crazed. That's not a very nice thing of him to do. And so Hermia's the last one. She says, Never so weary, never so in woe, bedabbled with the dew and torn with briars, 
I can no further crawl, no further go. So I've never been so weary. I've never been so in woe. In other words, sad or grieving. I've never been so bedabbled with the dew. It's a great word, bedabbled. It means something like splashed with the dew. But bedabbled is so much more fun to say. And torn with briars. Briars, again, being thorn bushes. So she's wet and she's bloody. She says, I can no further crawl, no further go. Go as in walk. And why? Because she says, my legs can keep no pace with my desires. Desires as in what she wants, her intentions. Her legs just won't keep up with them. She can't get the thing she wants because her legs are tired out. And like the rest of them, she says, Here will I rest me till the break of day. Heaven's shield, Lysander, if they mean a fray. So heaven's shield, may the heavens, may God, protect Lysander if they mean a fray, if they intend to fight. And if you look back over the two speeches that the women just gave before they went to sleep, you'll see a somewhat familiar structure, specifically in rhyme. You'll see that A-B-A-B-C-C rhyme, sort of like the last six lines of a sonnet. We've seen that earlier in the play, but I think that regularity, that pomishness of it, really gives us a sense of things being wrapped up. So finally, all four of them are asleep in the same place. It's time to fix things. And so Puck does the spell. He says, on the ground, sleep sound. You can hear the meter is suddenly all over the place. That great two-syllable line, sleep sound, as in soundly or deeply, with the alliteration of sleep and sound. And then he says, I'll apply to your eye, gentle lover, remedy. That's actually three rhymes in a row. It's hard to tell because it doesn't rhyme now, but remedy used to rhyme with apply and eye. And remedy here implies something like the antidote, the fix that reverses the spell. And remember, Puck only applies it to Lysander because Demetrius has to stay in love with Helena or this doesn't work. And then he keeps talking. He says, when thou wakest, thou takest true delight in the sight of thy former lady's eye. So again, those weird short lines. So when you wake up, you'll be delighted in the sight of thy former lady's eye. Former lady as in previous lover. But it's an exceptionally weird spell. He says you're going to delight in the sight of her eye. Not in the sight of her, but of her eye. Because again, lovers are connected at the eyes. But it's an odd construction. And then he goes back to that fairy meter for a second again. He says, And the country proverb known, that every man should take his own, in your waking shall be shown. So the known country proverb, in other words, the well-known country proverb, that every man should take his own. Take his own means something like marry like the right person for him. I guess there is a country proverb called, every man should take his own. In your waking, in other words, when you wake up, shall be shown, will be demonstrated to be true. And he concludes, Jack shall have Jill, not shall go ill. It's such simple language. They're all single syllables. This will that, this will that. And these names, Jack and Jill, aren't specific. It's like, boy X will have girl Y. Not shall go ill. Nothing will go badly. Nothing will go wrong. The man shall have his mare again, and all shall be well. Mare is a weird word choice. It's like the wife as a female horse. Patricio actually says something very similar in The Taming of the Shrew. It seems to kind of reduce women to property, wouldn't you say? Then again, at this time, women were property. It's annoying, it sucks, but women were essentially the wholly owned subsidiary of first their fathers and then their husbands. Unfortunately, there's also that alliteration thing, man and mare. You also get that echo of not shall go ill and all shall be well because well and ill are opposites, as are not and all. So finally, everything is resolved. However, as you may have noticed, that is only the end of Act 3, and there are five acts in the play. What is going on here? Well, lucky for you, that's something we will touch on extensively in the next episode of Clear Shakespeare Midsummer. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you'll come back for episode five. In the meantime, if you like this podcast, please subscribe to it on iTunes. If you really like it, please leave a review, ideally a good one. And if you really, really like it, remember that it takes me a lot of time and effort and money to make this. Please go to clearshakespeare.com support. And if you could kick in a few bucks to make this podcast possible, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye.